Welcome to Hackstack, the show that gives you all the tips, tricks and advice you need to increase your productivity, lower your stress level and find ultimate purpose in life. All done one simple step at a time. And now, here is your host, Coz. Well, howdy folks and welcome to Hackstack episode number 10. This is a milestone episode. Uh, Why is that? Well... It's episode number 10. That's a nice, even, round number. And it marks the ending of what I consider to be Hackstack Bootcamp. If you make it through the first 10 episodes, consider yourself a graduate uh, to the next level of Hackstack. I'm trying to figure out, that's like going from white belt in karate to yellow belt. Not a huge move, but it's it's a big move nonetheless, and you, you should be very proud of yourself for, for making it through 10 uh, long episodes. Uh, I've gotten some comments that some of these episodes are a little long, and yes, they are a little long, but um, you know, this show's not for everyone. It's a, it's a personal development show. Uh, hopefully, you guys can, can kind of soak in the slide edge concepts, and you don't have to listen to to one episode uh, all in one sitting you can you can listen to it over your commute over a week um, over a couple weeks uh, re-listen to it uh, things like that uh, really try and not get through it just to get through it but really try and and mine these podcasts for good information that you can actually use in your life so moving forward, I may have some episodes that are long. I may have some episodes that are a little bit shorter. But after this episode, it's it's going to be a, a free-for-all. We're going to tackle different topics. Um, I'll fill you guys in a little bit later on on some of the episodes that will be up and coming. But for now, I would like to start this episode off with a few questions for you to stew on. All right, so here they are. Would you rather be a good spouse or a good employee? Would you rather be a good parent or be a good steward with your finances? Would you rather be charitable with your money now or have money for retirement? Would you rather have a good time now or have an impeccable reputation? Would you rather get in shape or have more time to do the things that you want? Well, hopefully you, you spotted out that those questions are, um, they're not either or. You can obviously both and, and that's kind of what this show is about. Uh, that, <laughs> that was a, a logical fallacy known as a false dilemma. Okay, so it's not one traded off for another. Uh, You can have one of the above, more than one of the above, two or three, all of the above. Um, So you don't necessarily have to trade things off. But what often happens to us is that we say certain things that we actually, although it's not explicitly said in our minds, we sort of imply that, you know what, you you can't do both. You, You, it's, it's either or in some of these situations. So when you say things like, when I have enough time, I'm going to do X. When I have more money, I'm going to do X. 
when I have more energy, when I get out of school, when school begins, when my kids grow up, when my kids graduate, when I get my own place, when I move out, when I buy a house, when I sell a house, when I get that promotion, et cetera, et cetera, right? You're always, you always have some built-in excuse to not move forward, okay? So I'm going to play a a clip from Seth Godin's blog. Uh, we haven't heard from him since uh, the first episode, but this this is a good illustration of of some of those excuses that we we sometimes use. And it's it's one of those if then excuses. If this happens, then I will do that. And and I think a lot of us do that inadvertently. Uh, this clip is in the context of business, but it can easily be translated into uh, one's personal life. So let's check out this uh, clip from best-selling author and entrepreneur Seth Godin. Here we go. The interim strategy. We say we want to treat people fairly, build an institution that will contribute to the culture and embrace diversity. We say we want to do things right the first time. Treat people as we would like to be treated and build something that matters. But first, first we say we have to make our company work. We say we intend to hire and train great people, but in the interim, we'll have to settle for cheap and available. We say we'd like to give back, but of course, in the interim, first we have to get. This interim strategy, the notion that ideals and principles are for later, but right now all the focus and resources have to be put into the emergency of getting successful, It doesn't work. It doesn't work because it's always the interim. It never seems like the right time to stop doing what worked and start doing what we said was important. The first six hires you make are more important than hires 100 through 105. The first difficult ethical decision you make is more important than the one you make once you've apparently made it. The difficult conversation you have tomorrow is far more important than the one you might have to have a few years from now. Exactly how successful do we have to get before we stop cutting corners, making selfish decisions, and playing the short-term game? All the great organizations I can think of started as great organizations. Tiny, perhaps, but great. Life is what happens while we're busy making plans. The interim is forever. So perhaps it makes sense to act in the interim as we expect to act in the long haul. So that's an interesting take on things. Uh, a lot of times we're focused on the short game, right? The short term, we cut corners, we make selfish decisions, and we forget about the long term. The long term is some something that we'll maybe get to uh, once things kind of kind of get better now. But uh, I really want you to start to focus on the long term and how to uh, achieve some of those really really important. Uh, things that you have for yourself. So I know, for example, men in particular, they say things to themselves like, well, I want to work hard. I want to work long hours. I want to bring home the bacon for my family, make a lot of money. And um, that's noble to to a certain degree. But a lot of times, inadvertently and unknowingly, that comes at the expense of spending time with your wife and kids. So that's why I asked that that first question. You know, would you rather be a, a good husband or a good employee? Now, if someone just asks you that question, you're like, well, that's that's kind of a stupid question. It's it's I, I want to be both. Well, I agree, but 
if you don't think about some of these things, you're actually only doing one or the other uh, because you're not really aware of some of these things. So, so then the the question becomes, well, well, how do you do this? What what are what are the things that you want to accomplish? Right? You want to be a good father or mother. You know, you want to be a good husband or wife. Uh, you want to be wise with your money, or you want to be a, a good boss or a good employee that has the respect of your coworkers. Uh, you want to get in shape. You want to be athletic. Uh, and guess what? <laughs> you want to relax. You want to have fun. You want to enjoy life. Um, heck, you may want to. Learn how to play the guitar. You want to improve your bowling game, uh, improve your golf stroke. Oh, not to mention maybe, uh, I don't know, write a book, uh, become a leader, leave a legacy, you know, leave your mark on this world. But all of those things seem really, really hard to obtain when you're <laughs> when you're just trying to, to make it through the day. So, that's what we're going to talk about on this show. This show is totally dedicated to productivity and how to tune out some of the distractions and how to really focus in on, on some of the important things in life. So to start that discussion, I'm going to talk about something that is called the time matrix. Um, this is a little diagram that I'll, I'll post on the show notes. It, it came from a book called the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by, by Stephen Covey. And the time matrix has basically four quadrants uh, designated by two markers. Uh, on one axis, you have not important and important. And on the other axis, you have urgent and not urgent. And again, these will be in the show notes, but I just want to describe two of the quadrants just to give you a feel. Um, the worst quadrant to spend most of your time in is uh, the intersection of the not urgent and not important. Uh, that's certain things like uh, wasting too much time watching TV or making phone calls or you know playing video games, certain things like that. Um, and the most important quadrant to be in is the intersection of not urgent and important. That's quadrant two, and that's things like relationship building, personal development, uh, employee training, exercise and health, and prevention and planning. So in generally speaking, any activity that you do can fit into one of these four quadrants. But not to get too into too much minutia right now, I really want you to just focus on the major distinguishing factor uh, between uh, any given activity, and that's the difference between an urgent activity and an important activity. And as we go through this this podcast, we're going to talk about three major concepts. Um, you may not have heard of some of these, but I guarantee you you've experienced them. And once they're described to you, uh, it will it will make a little bit more sense. So. So this first concept is called the tyranny of the urgent. And in the 1960s, there was a, a Christian theologian by the name of Charles Hummel, and he wrote uh, an essay by the same name, and it really describes how how people tend to forego doing the important things because they get distracted by the, the things that are sort of urgent and right in front of their faces. Now, uh, it's not that hard of a concept, but I think it's really, really helpful to put a name 
to something that most of us experience probably every day of our life. So to help dig into this concept a little bit more, I found a blog from uh, a blog called The Art of Simple. It's written by a, uh, a wife and mother of three kids. So that's the perspective that it's written from. Uh, but I think it does a really good job of describing this concept. So we're going to play that clip right now. Charles E. Hummel published a groundbreaking essay in 1967 entitled The Tyranny of the Urgent. In essence, Hummel categorizes daily tasks according to two criteria, urgent and important. The premise of the tyranny of the urgent is that if we do not actively allocate or plan for our time, someone else will take it. Hummel steers productivity seekers into the first quadrant or the area urgent and important where activities such as customer meetings and sales proposals are assigned high prioritization, and rightly so. On the other end of the spectrum, activities such as socializing at work are defined in Quadrant 4 as not important and not urgent. Hummel argues that there is a regular tension between things that are urgent and things that are important, and far too often, the urgent wins. In the business world, this means that demands of your boss, your client, or petty office relationships can often take priority over things like thoroughly completing a task before starting the next one, or building unity in a work team which would instill camaraderie and longevity. The urgent, though less important, is prioritized and therefore the important is put on the back burner. There is no different in home life. Far too often, we focus on the urgent things in front of us, and at the end of the day, the things we really care about, the important, were barely given a glance. A description of the urgent looks different for different families, in different seasons, and even in different hours of the day. Some examples might be answering the phone, replying to emails, changing a diaper, getting bills paid by their due date, running kids to ballet practice or karate lessons, cleaning up a spill, gathering up the clutter before your spouse returns home from work. None of these things are evil, yet they often need to be done quickly, or at least at a designated time. Some examples of important things in life may look like this. Spending time with your spouse. Teaching your children to read. Fostering a spirit of creativity at home. Becoming debt-free. Building relationships with your neighbors. Spending quality time outdoors. Taking care of your health. It gets ugly when the urgent and the important headbutt in a crash collision and the twisted cacophony makes it awfully difficult to distinguish between the two. The urgent looks like the important, and vice versa. You'd like to slow down and have more quality time reading and playing with your children, but after-school commitments mean that instead of an hour at the park getting quality outdoor time and exercising with your kids, you have to play taxi and get everyone to their lessons. In your family, it's high priority to have dinner together as a family around the table. But at 5 o'clock, dinner's boiling on the stove, your preschooler is whining that she's bored, and then your mother calls. You answer the phone because you don't want your mom to get upset. And instead of letting your daughter solve her own problem, you toss in a DVD to keep her at bay. All the while, dinner has charred. You want a tighter rein on your finances, and you'd like to teach your kids the basics of money management and contentment. But when it's costume time for the school play, you're too busy fighting the clutter at home, serving as team mom out of guilt, 
or working at the office 50 hours a week so you can maintain your lifestyle. So you don't have time to make a costume. Sure, it would be cheaper, more fun, and teach more life lessons to craft a chicken costume out of things around the house. But because of time, it's easier to plop down cash and order one online. None of these scenarios are evil, mind you. There are times when it's best to pay for a service over doing it yourself, or to spend quality time with your daughter and order pizza for dinner that night. But it becomes an issue when it's the modus operandi in your home, when the urgent always trumps the important. I encourage you to step back for a few moments today and look at the week ahead. Are there obvious urgencies? Are they truly urgent? Then make them a priority. But are the urgencies disguised as something important? Does that urgent obligation rob you of your time or money you'd rather spend on something truly important to you? See if you can let that urgency fall back in line and let the important take priority. It's stressful, it's incongruent, and it's no fun to let the urgent rule our lives. It's why we feel like we're living someone else's life. It's why we want to stand up on the coffee table and scream, Enough! to all the chaos. Be intentional with your time. Release the guilt you have about fulfilling all the urgencies in your life. And make it a priority to prioritize at least one truly important thing this week. Okay, so that was concept number one, tyranny of the urgent. Hopefully uh, that made it pretty clear uh, what we're talking about here. I'm sure most of you can relate to that. But now that you have an official name for uh, distractions, hopefully you can kind of keep that in your mind. And that will make you a little bit more aware of certain things when they pop up in your daily life. So that was step one of the process. Concept number two is coming here right now. And it is a concept called Parkinson's Law. Now, if you've read any kind of time management or productivity or even just generic business books, you have probably come across this concept, uh, Parkinson's Law. But again, I want to put an official name to something I know each and every one of us experience all the time. And I found a blog that does a pretty good job of breaking that down. So I'm going to have that blog played for you right now. So here you go. Parkinson's Law Definition Parkinson's Law Work expands so as to fill the time available for its completion. How Parkinson's Law Works in Real Life Whether or not you're aware of it, you've probably experienced Parkinson's Law many times in real life. In college, you had all semester to write a paper and yet you wrote it in the last 72 hours before the deadline and emailed it in at 5 a.m. on the morning it was due. You had all week to finalize a proposal, but waited to do it until 4.30 on Friday. All year, you knew you had a wedding or beach vacation to get ready for, but you put off healthy eating and went on a crash diet four weeks before the trip. If you've experienced any of the above scenarios, you know exactly what I'm talking about. For months on end, you're paralyzed and incapable of working, and then suddenly you become a machine in the final week before the task has to be done. What happened? Parkinson's Law Cyril Parkinson, a British historian, first observed the trend during his time with the British Civil Service. He noted that as bureaucracies expanded, they became more inefficient. He then applied this observation to a variety of other circumstances 
realizing that as the size of something increased, its efficiency dropped. He found that even a series of simple tasks increased in complexity to fill up the time allotted to it. As the length of time allocated to a task became shorter, the task became simpler and easier to solve. This concept goes hand in hand with the belief that you need to work hard rather than efficiently. That mentality is reflected in the fact that managers often reward workers for button seat hours rather than hours spent actually working or results produced. However, as negative as this rule sounds so far, you can flip it on its head to use it to your advantage. How to use Parkinson's law to your advantage. Unfortunately, very few people will actually tell you to work less. Even fewer people will force you to work less. That means if you're going to implement Parkinson's law, you're going to have to do it yourself. You're going to have to apply artificial limitations to your work in order to do it more efficiently. Here are a few tips for doing just that. Work without your computer charger. Force yourself to get stuff done before your computer runs out of battery. Use the Pomodoro technique. The Pomodoro technique helps you to systematically chop your tasks into chunks and forces you to set a specific timetable for accomplishing them. Restrict your time artificially by moving throughout the day. Force yourself to move every two hours and create a set task list. Instead of trying to write 1,000 words in a day, run X miles in a day, or go to the gym, make a rule to do XYZ before 10 a.m. Get it done early and then let yourself coast. You'll be surprised at how much this frees up the rest of your day. An extreme example of this is to stop working afternoon altogether. I don't do this. I have too much work to do. But some people swear by it. If you wake up early enough, you can certainly use this to get more done and to have more free time. Set a hard deadline. To lose weight, for example, find a four-week program or an eight-week program. Set a specific goal for the end of that length of time and set it in stone. Have something like a photo shoot plan to motivate you to hit your goals. You can certainly lose 10 pounds in six months, but you can also do it in eight weeks if you set eight weeks as your limit. Limit tasks like responding to email to 30 minutes a day. Instead of agonizing over each email, spend 30 minutes on your emails at the end of the day and be done with it. You'll find that smaller tasks take up much less time this way. Does your coffee shop close at a certain time? If so, force yourself to stop working when it closes. Stop working late. When I first worked at a marketing agency, I used to work late all the time. I'd take work home with me or stay at the office. I was convinced that I needed to show my dedication, earn my stripes, and simply get more stuff done, and that working more hours was the way to do this. Nope. Interestingly enough, I worked more but got less done. On top of that, I was stressed all the time. I was an addict not to work but thinking that I was working. It got so bad that one day I decided enough was enough. I remember specifically saying that I was no longer going to work after 6 p.m. Full stop. Like an addict, I had a hard time at first. I was scared, worrying that I was never going to get enough done and that there wasn't enough time in the day. I was wrong. I actually found out that I was more productive than ever and that I had time for a social life outside of work again. The counterintuitive thinking actually works. Creating artificial restraints on my work created more freedom. Refuse to bring work home. This is easily the best advice and it works 100% of the time when I implement it. Simply refuse. Don't work from your bed or couch no matter how comfortable that may be. 
When you leave the office, coffee shop, or co-working space, simply stop working. There'll be enough time to work tomorrow. Let your home be just that, your home. Use restrictions to create freedom. The overarching lesson from Parkinson's Law is that restrictions can actually create freedom. This is completely counterintuitive thinking, but it's true. Even outside of simple task management, restriction creates freedom. Try these exercises on for size. Think of 10 things you see on a daily basis. Now think of 10 things in your local coffee shop. Which was easier? Name 20 words in Spanish. Now count out the numbers 1 through 20 in Spanish. Which was easier? Name 10 fun activities. Now think of 10 different water activities. Which was easier? Specificity and restrictions create freedom and nourish creativity. Add them to your arsenal of tools as you become an uber-productive and efficient creator. The takeaway. If work expands to fill the time allotted to it, make less time available to get more work done. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. That is a really useful idea to be aware of, Parkinson's Law. And I'm sure you can see this just in your own life all the time. A classic example is, is cramming for a test last minute. If you own a house and you just walk outside to your garage, you look around and you'll notice uh, most every square inch of space is filled to the max. And just think about this for a second. If you went from a two-car garage to magically to a three-car garage and you had a full third bay that was empty, how long do you think it would take before that third bay in the garage was full and you couldn't walk uh, in that third bay? So it's not too hard to look into our personal life and see uh, Parkinson's law uh, in effect. And most of the time that's to the negative, but we're we're going to start to use that to our advantage. And some of you have probably already experienced uh, the advantage. You you didn't have a a name for it before, but if you've been doing a morning routine, um, you've sort of created some of these artificial deadlines and, and you probably experience uh, the upside of Parkinson's Law. So if you're getting up early in the morning and obviously you have to leave at a certain time, you have to, to take the kids to school or go to work or, or do whatever you need to do, uh, the time you get up and the time you actually exit your house, you, you have a, a, an artificial uh, deadline right there. So so you've con- you've created... Um, what I like to call a bucket of time. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. We'll also talk about uh, a little bit about the Pomodoro technique, uh, which was mentioned in the blog that you just listened to. Uh, I, I've used it a little bit. It, it's kind of helpful, but um, I think it's just kind of cool because it's, it's an interesting name. So that alone is worth exploring. But for now, we are going to move on to concept number three of three for this show. And, and I kind of like this because we're, we're coming full circle. I had actually mentioned this in episode number one, uh, the Pareto principle, also known as the 80-20 rule. I, I barely mentioned it at the uh, end of the episode, uh, episode number one. But I, I, told, I promised you guys that we would get around to that later. 
And sure enough, here we are, episode number 10, and we're going to close that loop up and explain a technique that is amazingly powerful and effective. And to do that, I am going to play a clip from the 4-Hour Workweek by Timothy Ferris. And by the way, that's it's just an amazing book. It It really opens up your mind and let you think about things from a different perspective. And the guy's a, uh, a real wise guy and he's funny to listen to. Uh, but just so you know, his whole concept is about becoming the NR, the new rich. And the new rich basically uh, make more money and work less hours. Now, working only four hours a week, I don't know if that's necessarily realistic. It's more of a a catchy title, but uh, the general concept that you and I are are wasting a a lot of time and doing a lot of things that we don't need to be doing or could be doing more effectively is spot on. So regardless of the flashy title, there's definitely some, some... benefit to be had by by reading the book uh, even if you're not an entrepreneur so this is a really cool clip that explains the pareto principle uh, in detail but most of all it gives a real life example of a, an individual that struggled with coming to grips uh, about actually enforcing this principle uh was almost a, a sort of leap of faith to uh, to test this out, and we weren't just talking, you know, theoretical. Uh, this was potentially costing uh, Timothy Ferris a lot of money, uh, but it, I, it turned out for the good, and it's a really cool story. And that's what I want. That's why I want to play it for you. And just so you know, I think the business that he is talking about is he sells uh, nutrition supplements to different health stores. I'm pretty sure that was the the product. Not that that matters, but um, I think it'll help put a little context to this story. So uh, here's Timothy Ferris talking about the Pareto Principle, and he also throws in a little bit of the Parkinson's Law at the end to boot. So check this out. It's a pretty interesting clip. It is vain to do with more what can be done with less. William of Ockham, 1300-1350, originator of Ockham's Razor. Just a few words on time management. Forget all about it. In the strictest sense, you shouldn't be trying to do more in each day, trying to fill every second with a work fidget of some type. It took me a long time to figure this out. I used to be very fond of the results-by-volume approach. Being busy is most often used as a guise for avoiding the few critically important but uncomfortable actions— The options are almost limitless for creating busyness. You could call a few hundred unqualified sales leads, reorganize your Outlook contacts, walk across the office to request documents you don't really need, or fuss with your BlackBerry for a few hours when you should be prioritizing. In fact, if you want to move up the ladder in most of corporate America, and assuming they don't really check what you are doing, let's be honest. Just run around the office building holding a cell phone to your head and carrying papers. Now that is one busy employee. Give them a raise. Unfortunately for the NR, this behavior won't get you out of the office or put you on an airplane to Brazil. Bad dog. Hit yourself with a newspaper and cut it out. After all, there is a far better option. 
and it will do more than simply increase your results. It will multiply them. Believe it or not, it is not only possible to accomplish more by doing less. It is mandatory. Enter the world of elimination. How you will use productivity. Now that you have defined what you want to do with your time, you have to free that time. The trick, of course, is to do so while maintaining or increasing your income. The intention of this chapter and what you will experience if you follow the instructions is an increase in personal productivity between 100 and 500 percent. The principles are the same for both employees and entrepreneurs, but the purpose of this increased productivity is completely different. First, the employee. The employee is increasing productivity to increase negotiating leverage for two simultaneous objectives, pay raises and a remote working arrangement. Recall that, as indicated in the first chapter of this audiobook, the general process of joining the new rich is D-E-A-L, in that order, but that employees intent on remaining employees for now need to implement the process as D-E-L. A. The reason relates to environment. They need to liberate themselves from the office environment before they can work 10 hours a week, for example, because the expectation in that environment is that you will be in constant motion from 9 to 5, even if you produce twice the results you had in the past, if you're working a quarter of the hours of your colleagues, there is a good chance of receiving a pink slip. Even if you work 10 hours a week and produce twice the results of people working 40, the collective request will be work 40 hours a week and produce eight times the results. This is an endless game and one you want to avoid. Hence the need for liberation first. If you're an employee, this chapter will increase your value and make it more painful for the company to fire you than to grant raises and a remote working agreement. That is your goal. Once the latter is accomplished, you can drop hours without bureaucratic interference and use the resultant free time to fulfill dreamlines. The entrepreneur's goals are less complex, as he or she is generally the direct beneficiary of increased profit. The goal is to decrease the amount of work you perform while increasing revenue. This will set the stage for replacing yourself with automation, which in turn permits liberation. For both tracks, some definitions are in order. Being effective versus being efficient. Effectiveness is doing the things that get you closer to your goals. Efficiency is performing a given task, whether important or not, in the most economical manner possible. Being efficient without regard to effectiveness is the default mode of the universe. I would consider the best door-to-door -door salesperson efficient, that is, refined and excellent at selling door-to-door -door without wasting time, but utterly ineffective. He or she would sell more using a better vehicle, such as email or direct mail. This is also true for the person who checks email 30 times per day and develops an elaborate system of folder rules and sophisticated techniques for ensuring that each of those 30 brain farts moves as quickly as possible. I was a specialist at such professional wheel spinning. It is efficient, on some perverse level, but far from effective. 
Here are two truisms to keep in mind. 1. Doing something unimportant well does not make it important. 2. Requiring a lot of time does not make a task important. From this moment forward, remember this. What you do is infinitely more important than how you do it. Efficiency is still important, but it's useless unless applied to the right things. To find the right things, we'll need to go to the garden. Pareto and his garden. 80-20 and freedom from futility. What gets measured gets managed. Peter Drucker, management theorist, author of 31 books, recipient of Presidential Medal of Freedom. Four years ago, an economist changed my life forever. It's a shame I never had a chance to buy him a drink. My dear Vilfredo died almost 100 years ago. Vilfredo Pareto was a wily and controversial economist cum sociologist who lived from 1848 to 1923. An engineer by training, he started his varied career managing coal mines and later succeeded Leon Valra as the chair of political economy at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland. His seminal work, Cours d'économie politique, included a then little-explored law of income distribution that would later bear his name, Pareto's Law, or the Pareto Distribution, in the last decade also popularly called the 80-20 Principle. The mathematical formula he used to demonstrate a grossly uneven but predictable distribution of wealth in society, 80% of the wealth and income was produced and possessed by 20% of the population, also applied outside of economics. Indeed, it could be found almost everywhere. 80% of Pareto's garden peas were produced by 20% of the pea pods he had planted, for example. Pareto's law can be summarized as follows. 80% of the outputs result from 20% of the inputs. Alternative ways to phrase this, depending on the context, include 80% of the consequences flow from 20% of the causes. 80% of the results come from 20% of the effort and time. 80% of company profits come from 20% of the products and customers. 80% of all stock market gains are realized by 20% of the investors and 20% of an individual portfolio. The list is infinitely long and diverse, and the ratio is often skewed even more severely. 90-10, 95-5, and 99-1 are not uncommon, but the minimum ratio to seek is 80-20. When I came across Pareto's work one late evening, I had been slaving away with 15-hour days, seven days per week, feeling completely overwhelmed and generally helpless. I would wake up before dawn to make calls to the United Kingdom, handle the U.S. during the normal nine-to-five day, and then work until near midnight making calls to Japan and New Zealand. I was stuck on a runaway freight train with no brakes, shoveling coal into the furnace for lack of a better option. Faced with certain burnout or giving Pareto's ideas a trial run, I opted for the latter. The next morning I began a dissection of my business and personal life through the lenses of two questions. 1. Which 20% of sources are causing 80% of my problems and unhappiness? 2. 
which 20% of sources are resulting in 80% of my desired outcomes and happiness. For the entire day I put aside everything seemingly urgent and did the most intense truth-bearing analysis possible. Applying these questions to everything from my friends to customers and advertising to relaxation activities. Don't expect to find you're doing everything right. The truth often hurts. The goal is to find your inefficiencies in order to eliminate them and to find your strengths so you can multiply them. In the 24 hours that followed, I made several simple but emotionally difficult decisions that literally changed my life forever and enabled the lifestyle I now enjoy. The first decision I made is an excellent example of how dramatic and fast the ROI of this analytical fat-cutting can be. I stopped contacting 95% of my customers and fired 2%, leaving me with the top 3% of producers to profile and duplicate. Out of more than 120 wholesale customers, a mere 5 were bringing in 95% of the revenue. I was spending 98% of my time chasing the remainder as the aforementioned five ordered regularly without any follow-up calls, persuasion, or cajoling. In other words, I was working because I felt as though I should be doing something from 9 to 5. I didn't realize that working every hour from 9 to 5 isn't the goal. It's simply the structure most people use, whether it's necessary or not. I had a severe case of work for work, W4W, the most hated acronym in the NR vocabulary. All, and I mean 100% of my problems and complaints, came from this unproductive majority, with the exception of two large customers who were simply world-class experts of the here-is-the-fire-I-started-now-you-put-it-out approach to business. I put all of these unproductive customers on passive mode. If they ordered, great, let them fax in the order. If not, I would do absolutely no chasing. No phone calls, no email, nothing. That left the two larger customers to deal with, who were professional ball-breakers but contributed about 10% to the bottom line at the time. You'll always have a few of these, and it is a quandary that causes all sorts of problems, not the least of which are self-hatred and depression. Up to that point I had taken their browbeating insults, time-consuming arguments, and tirades as a cost of doing business. I realized during the 80-20 analysis that these two people were the source of nearly all my unhappiness and anger throughout the day, and it usually spilled over into my personal time. I finally concluded the obvious. The effect on my self-esteem and state of mind just wasn't worth the financial gain. I didn't need the money for any precise reason, and I had assumed I needed to take it. The customers are always right, aren't they? Part of doing business, right? Hell no. Not for the NR, anyway. I fired their asses and enjoyed every second of it. The first conversation went like this. Customer. What the bleep? I ordered two cases and they arrived two days late. Note. He had sent the order to the wrong person via the wrong medium despite repeated reminders. You guys are the most disorganized bunch of idiots I've ever worked with. I have twenty years of experience in this industry and this is the worst. N-E-N-R, in this case, me. I will kill you. Be afraid. Be very afraid. I wish. I did rehearse that a million times in my mental theater, 
but it actually went something more like this. I'm sorry to hear that. You know, I've been taking your insults for a while now, and it's unfortunate that it seems we won't be able to do business anymore. I'd recommend you take a good look at where this unhappiness and anger is actually coming from. In any case, I wish you well. If you would like to order product, we'll be happy to supply it, but only if you can conduct yourself without profanity and unnecessary insults. You have our fax number. All the best, and have a nice day. Click. I did this once via phone and once through email. So what happened? I lost one customer, but the other corrected course and simply faxed orders again and again and again. Problem solved. Minimum revenue lost. I was immediately ten times happier. I then identified the common characteristics of my top five customers and secured three or so similarly profiled buyers in the following week. Remember, more customers is not automatically more income. More customers is not the goal and often translates into 90% more housekeeping and a paltry 1-3% to increase in income. Make no mistake, maximum income from minimal necessary effort, including minimum number of customers, is the primary goal. I duplicated my strengths, in this case my top producers, and focused on increasing the size and frequency of their orders. The end result? I went from chasing and appeasing 120 customers to simply receiving large orders from eight, with absolutely no pleading, phone calls, or email haranguing. My monthly income increased from $30,000 to $60,000 in four weeks, and my weekly hours immediately dropped from over 80 to approximately 15. Most important, I was happy with myself and felt both optimistic and liberated for the first time in over two years. In the ensuing weeks, I applied the 80-20 principle to dozens of areas, including the following. 1. Advertising. I identified the advertising that was generating 80% or more of revenue, identified the commonalities among them, and multiplied them, eliminating all the rest at the same time. My advertising costs dropped over 70%, and my direct sales income nearly doubled from a monthly $15,000 to $25,000 in eight weeks. It would have doubled immediately had I been using radio, newspapers, or television instead of magazines with long lead times. 2. Online Affiliates and Partners I fired more than 250 low-yield online affiliates, or put them in holding patterns to focus instead on the two affiliates who were generating 90% of the income. My management time decreased from 5 to 10 hours per week to 1 hour per month. Online partner income increased more than 50% in that same month. Slow down and remember this. Most things make no difference. Being busy is a form of laziness lazy thinking, and indiscriminate action. Being overwhelmed is often as unproductive as doing nothing and is far more unpleasant. Being selective, doing less, is the path of the productive. Focus on the important few and ignore the rest. Of course, before you can separate the wheat from the chaff and eliminate activities in a new environment, whether a new job or an entrepreneurial venture, you will need to try a lot to identify what pulls the most weight. Throw it all up on the wall and see what sticks. That's part of the process, but it should not take more than a month or two. 
It's easy to get caught in a flood of minutia, and the key to not feeling rushed is remembering that lack of time is actually lack of priorities. Take time to stop and smell the roses, or in this case, to count the pea pods. The Nine to Five Illusion and Parkinson's Law I saw a bank that said 24-hour banking, but I don't have that much time. Stephen Wright, Comedian If you're an employee, spending time on nonsense is, to some extent, not your fault. There is often no incentive to use time well unless you are paid on commission. The world has agreed to shuffle papers between 9 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m., and since you're trapped in the office for that period of servitude, you are compelled to create activities to fill that time. Time is wasted because there is so much time available. It's understandable. Now that you have the new goal of negotiating a remote work arrangement instead of just collecting a paycheck, it's time to revisit the status quo and become effective. The best employees have the most leverage. For the entrepreneur, the wasteful use of time is a matter of bad habit and imitation. I am no exception. Most entrepreneurs were once employees and come from the nine-to-five culture. Thus, they adopt the same schedule, whether or not they function at nine o'clock a.m. or need eight hours to generate their target income. This schedule is a collective social agreement and a dinosaur legacy of the results-by-volume approach. How is it possible that all the people in the world need exactly eight hours to accomplish their work? It isn't. Nine to five is arbitrary. You don't need eight hours per day to become a legitimate millionaire, let alone have the means to live like one. Eight hours per week is often excessive, but I don't expect all of you to believe me just yet. I know you probably feel as I did for a long time. There just aren't enough hours in the day. But let's consider a few things we can probably agree on. Since we have eight hours to fill, we fill eight hours. If we had 15, we would fill 15. If we have an emergency and need to suddenly leave work in two hours but have pending deadlines, we miraculously complete those assignments in two hours. It is all related to a law that was introduced to me by Ed Zhao in the spring of 2000. I had arrived to class nervous and unable to concentrate. The final paper, worth a full 25% of the semester's grade, was due in 24 hours. One of the options, and that which I had chosen, was to interview the top executives of a startup and provide an in-depth analysis of their business model. The corporate powers that be had decided last minute that I couldn't interview two key figures or use their information due to confidentiality issues and pre-IPO precautions. Game over. I approached Ed after class to deliver the bad news. Ed, I think I'm going to need an extension on the paper. I explained the situation, and Ed smiled before he replied without so much as a hint of concern. I think you'll be okay. Entrepreneurs are those who make things happen, right? Twenty-four hours later and one minute before the deadline, as his assistant was locking the office, I handed in a thirty-page final paper. It was based on a different company I had found, interviewed, and dissected with an intense all-nighter and enough caffeine to get an entire Olympic track team disqualified. It ended up being one of the best papers I'd written in four years, and I received an A. Before I left the classroom the previous day, 
Ed had given me some parting advice. Parkinson's Law Parkinson's Law dictates that a task will swell in perceived importance and complexity in relation to the time allotted for its completion. It is the magic of the imminent deadline. If I give you 24 hours to complete a project, the time pressure forces you to focus on execution, and you have no choice but to do only the bare essentials. If I give you a week to complete the same task, it's six days of making a mountain out of a molehill. If I give you two months, God forbid, it becomes a mental monster. The end product of the shorter deadline is almost inevitably of equal or higher quality due to greater focus. This presents a very curious phenomenon. There are two synergistic approaches for increasing productivity that are inversions of each other. One, limit tasks to the important to shorten work time, 80-20. Two, shorten work time to limit tasks to the important, Parkinson's Law. The best solution is to use both together. Identify the few critical tasks that contribute most to income and schedule them with very short and clear deadlines. If you haven't identified the mission-critical tasks and set aggressive start and end times for their completion, the unimportant becomes the important. Even if you know what's critical, without deadlines that create focus, the minor tasks forced upon you, or invented in the case of the entrepreneur, will swell to consume time until another bit of minutia jumps in to replace it, leaving you at the end of the day with nothing accomplished. How else could dropping off a package at UPS, setting a few appointments, and checking email consume an entire 9-to-5 day? Don't feel bad. I spent months jumping from one interruption to the next, feeling run by my business instead of the other way around. The 80-20 principle and Parkinson's Law are the two cornerstone concepts that will be revisited in different forms throughout this entire section. Most inputs are useless, and time is wasted in proportion to the amount that is available. Fat-free performance and time freedom begins with limiting intake overload. Okay, so that was a really cool story, in my opinion, on just how the Pareto Principle works in real life action it's the best way to cut the excess fat from your time schedule and really focus in on the things that matter the most and that will produce the most bang for your uh, time resource buck so i'm gonna play one more quick clip and then i'm going to uh, close up with my uh, one major hack for uh, this episode, and and I I hope you're starting to notice a, a common thread. So think about the Pareto principle. When I say I have one hack, uh, these are, I mean, there's there's hundreds of hacks on on virtually every subject uh, that you could imagine. But I'm trying to focus on if you do these one or two things consistently, um, man, the payoffs are just huge. And that's really the essence of the Pareto principle. So that's why I try and keep these these hacks simple and stack them on top of each other. And if you can do uh, just these few little things here and there, they can make a, a tremendous uh, breakthrough in your life. So again, I'll go over some closing shots uh, after this clip. Uh, but for now, I want to play a clip 
from a radio talk show. Uh, and the show is called Stand to Reason, and it's hosted by Greg Kokel. And first off, I have to tell you a, a little bit about this show. It's it's a pretty unique show. Uh, it's actually a show that deals with ethics, religion, and values. And it, it's hosted by a Christian, but he's a, he's a Christian philosopher and apologist, which basically means uh, he tries to defend his view uh, of Christianity, uh, but he does it in, I mean, it's it's actually a pretty amazing way, okay? So he'll take phone calls from anyone. You can be a Christian, non-Christian, secular, Muslim, atheist, anybody. Anyone who wants to call him and chat with him can. Uh, so he gets people on there that agree with him. He gets people on there that definitely disagree with him. But the one thing that's so impressive about him is unlike you know these crazy political talk shows where um, you just got people screaming at each other and it seems like uh, it's like the mentality is whoever screams the loudest has the best argument or whoever makes fun of the guest the most <laughs> wins the argument uh, Greg Kokel actually listens to the question He's nice about it. He takes it seriously. He doesn't dodge questions, and he answers each question as thoroughly and uh, as able as he can. And and it's amazing. I've been listening to his show uh, for years. I came across it probably 10 years ago, and it really kind of changed my life and got me into philosophy, which then led into all sorts of other things that... Uh, not the least of which is is this podcast now. So uh, the reason I'm I'm playing this clip is more for my personal benefit. Um, by the time I heard this clip, I had already read just a ton of productivity and time management books, and um, then I I heard this clip and I'm like, oh, this will be interesting. This guy is kind of my uh, my virtual mentor that I look up to, and he's going to talk about productivity and time management and uh, I'm, I'm really interested in what he has to say and uh, I was quite relieved that he was pretty much doing everything that we have uh, talked about before he talks about a little bit about morning routines and he talks about urgent issues but uh, he gives an illustration about rock and gravel and sand that I that I think is pretty helpful uh, so I'm going to go ahead and play this clip um, it's pretty interesting because this guy's usually deals with um clips uh i mean questions that are i mean just amazingly hard you know why would god allow a, a sick child to die you know is, is stem cell research morally right or morally wrong you know if if satan exists does god love satan i mean <laughs> i mean just all sorts of crazy things that if someone were to ask me i would just kind of glaze over and stutter but but he answers them like a champion and uh, as a treat, uh, I may have a little bit of extra credit where Greg Kokel, um, actually it won't be a little bit, it'll be a, a lot of bit of extra credit, um, but it's just a really fascinating talk that he gives in front of a crowd of atheists. So, I mean, imagine being the only person uh, that believes in God in, <laughs> in a crowd full of atheists and you're presenting uh, to this this group and then afterwards, you take some uh, question and answers. It's it's just a fascinating uh, conversation, and it really kind of changed uh, 
not only how I think, but just how I interact with people. And that's kind of why I'm big at just being nice. And, you know, I've mentioned it a couple of times, like it's okay to disagree with people uh, and you can still get along with them as a person and a human being. <laughs> so we don't all have to agree to um, be uh, civil and courteous to each other. But anyway, back to, to this point, um, this, this caller asked him a question about productivity and just listen to some of the things um, that he says. And this ties into some of the concepts that we've already heard. And then uh, after the clip, I'll have a few other uh, parting comments and some homework and some good stuff for you. So uh, stay tuned after the clip. All right. Here you go. All right. Good. Welcome to the show. What's up? Thanks. Yeah. So my question is not so much about ethics, values, or religion. Mm -hmm. Um, But I wanted to know what systems you use to be productive, Mm -hmm. and then also how you train yourself to be disciplined to follow that system. Mm. Wow, this is a great question. It's a fun one to answer. I I wish I had a little bit more time, but I'll tell you... I believe in in discipline because I believe in productivity. Uh, The key to productivity... Is uh is is uh, uh let's see how do I want to put this the key to productivity is routine, and um, I have a job that does not allow routine, so I have an assault on my pro- productivity immediately. So how can I be most productive in light of the fact that I don't have routine? When I say routine, I mean that you're in a life situation that allows you to kind of get up at the same time every day, go to bed at the same time every day, and then fit the most important things in in a regular way that they become habit in the time that you have left. And if that, if you can't build a routine, then you're, 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 you, are, you are tossed to and fro by circumstances. It becomes much more difficult um, for you to uh, make the best use of your life. So the first thing that I want to say is um, routine is really key. If you can build routines... Um, that I'm going to get up this time and then I'm going to work out every for a half an hour every morning or, you know, uh, uh, I don't do that but because I'm not much of a morning person. But I'm just saying as an example. Or uh, we always have dinner at 5.30 and at 6 o'clock then we have family devotions and then we have this and then we go to bed. Routine is key to productivity. And some will say, especially if you can routinize your early morning hours, that w- that's really, really going to be increase your effectiveness the first, say, 90 minutes of your time. Um, I'm, one thing that helps me is I make a distinction between uh, big rocks and little rocks. Big rocks are the, are the pressing, really important things. Uh, let me back up. Big rocks are the really important things. They're not always the pressing things. And, uh, and, you, and it's important for us to get the big rocks done first. The big this comes from an illustration if you have uh sand and gravel and rocks, uh the best way to get them all into a beaker or a box is you put the rocks in first and then you put the gravel in next and then you pour the sand around it. If you put the sand in first and the gravel in next, the big rocks won't fit. Okay? And so big rocks first is the aphorism and I find that uh, one of the goals of my life is to try to figure out in any given day or week or month what the big rocks are in my life and to do them, okay? 
on a, on any given day or any a, any given month, and to try to to not let the urgent things push the big things out. All right. Now, so our, that's another. Sorry, pre- big rocks. Sorry, I cut in. Our big rocks the level of motivation it takes to finish them or the consequences if you don't do them. Yeah, it's more the consequences. It's the things that really matter that are really important. For example, uh, tomorrow I got a big rock, and the big rock is to finish solid ground, which was due last night, but I couldn't do it last night because I had another big rock in front of it, was getting my notes ready for two teachings I did last night at my local church, Living Oaks. So I had all these things converging, but I thought, what is the most important thing? It's the thing that is due first. That's this teaching. Once I get the teaching squared away, if I got any extra time, then I do the next big thing. As it turned out, I didn't have time to finish Solid Ground yesterday. I did finish the material for my talks, gave my talks. That means when I get home for tomorrow, I got to focus on Solid Ground, and all the other things are secondary because I got a deadline. That's a big rock. It's not the thing I want to do most. It isn't the thing that I'm motivated to do most. It's the thing I got to do because it's the most important. So the second thing I want to say is that if there are little things that come up that I can dispatch very quickly in a minute or two, I get rid of them. I don't like all these little things hanging there and cluttered around. Oh, I'll do that later. Procrastination is a killer. Now, sometimes procrastinating a, a, a little rock in virtue of a big, big rock is, is the right thing to do. And in those circumstances, if you're, if you're working on a big rock, turn your email machine off, turn your phone off, don't let the kids in the room, focus, don't let these little things uh, uh, get to you. But um, sometimes just going through the day, somebody says, hey, will you this, that, there it is, and you got something else on your plate. If I can get rid of it right away, I will. So, oh, you want me to do this? Let me just, I'm sending that email right now. Boom, it's done. Okay, finished. Oh, you, I got this thing you want me to look at, honey? All right, well, let me just read it right now. Uh, uh, uh. Okay, here's my decision. Done. So I don't have to add it to the list and have a whole bunch of little things that I can get rid of. Now, they take a little bit of time, but not much. And I like the, the idea of cleaning up the rubble. Okay, so the last thing uh, that Greg Kokel mentioned was he likes to clean up the rubble. And uh, that's that's basically if you've got a, a really short task, you know, a minute or two, just, just get it done right then and there so you don't have to worry about it again. And that's a real similar concept to the one uh, that's also in the book, Get Things Done by David Allen. It's one of the most uh, popular productivity books uh, ever. So to close up the episode here, I'm going to do things a little bit backwards. I'm going to uh, mention some of the books covered uh, in the show or some things that I think may be helpful for you. And then I'll, I'll sort of uh, fill in the gaps here and then give you the uh, the major hack of the show and give you some homework and some other pointers. Okay, so the books, I like to, to break those out into what I call old school time management and new school time management. Um, so the old school is, is very traditional, you know, that the, the tyranny of the urgent, uh, you know, concept that's been around since the 60s, um, you know, prioritizing uh, your tasks. Uh, that's something you'll find uh, in some of the, the older books. And when I say older, I mean, even like the, uh, the 90s uh, considered old. Uh, so anyway, 
the books I recommend uh, that you check out, uh, Eat That Frog. And Eat That Frog is a great book on on how to prioritize. Uh, and it's kind of cool how, how they came up with the name of that book. Um, and actually, you know, I think I may be able to post that book on a podcast. I think it's available out there in the internet world for free. So I may be able to have a podcast where you can uh, just check that one out. Um, the next old school time management book was already mentioned, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. Um, that, that's just a great book. Um, there, there's so many concepts in that book that that <laughs> a lot of these other books sort of, of steal from and then add on to. So it's a really, really good book. Get Things Done by David Allen is a great book. It's it's really good at telling you how to process information, uh, whether that's information coming in through your literal mailbox, your email, or uh, you know paper copies at work. Uh, it just gives you really good systems on how to process all of that and, and not let any one thing slip through the cracks. Um, I mean, it's so detailed. <laughs> if you talk to anyone that's read that book, they'd be excited if they could implement, you know, like 10% of the things that this guy says. I mean, there's so much information in there. So if you can talk, take away your, your top two or three things from that book, it's, it's a really, really uh, good book to read. One other book I'd like to mention is, uh, I've already mentioned it before on the show, but it's worth mentioning again. It's a book called The One Thing by Gary Keller. Uh, It's virtually the entire book is basically the Pareto Principle and how to maximize. And there's just story after story uh, on that concept. And it really gets you in that frame of mind to sort of pick the activities that will just maximize your results. So it's a really, really good book and it covers the Pareto principle in like every, every area of your life. It's a really, really good book. Now, what I would consider the new school time management books would be Procrastinate on Purpose by Rory Vaden. We've already mentioned that and played a clip on a prior episode. Um, Less Doing, More Living by Ari Mizell. And then finally, uh, The 4-Hour Workweek by by Tim Ferriss. And, and why I, I, I separate those into old school and new school is because uh, the old school is very like list-driven, write it down, um, prioritize. And you need to do that, and it's very good. But when you read some of the new school time management books, you can sort of sort of take that all to the next level. So, so there's all the books. Um, you you really need to do yourself a favor and and get through all of them because uh, it's such a critical area of life. Uh, I know it's not the the <laughs> the sexiest topic in the world to talk about efficiency and productivity, but man, even if you don't enjoy the topic, it's it's kind of like taking your medicine. You you just need to get through it because it will make every other area of life uh, that much better when you can manage your time well. All right, so here is the one hack you have to get right uh, for this show. It'll it'll be super helpful for you to accomplish the things you want to accomplish. Okay, sort of mentioned it last time on the fitness uh, podcast, but it's basically plan your day ahead. Okay, you always have to plan your day ahead. So. I'm going to tell you a quick story, and then I'm going to cash that out a little bit, and uh, hopefully this will all start to make sense. Okay, so when I was a kid, 
I would get home from school and I almost always knew what we were going to have for dinner. If it was Tuesday night, it was like Taco Tuesday. We knew <laughs> we were going to eat tacos on Tuesday. Every Friday night when my dad got home from work, he would he would come home with a pizza. All right. So mom and dad work a hard day, a uh, hard week. Uh, that was just something they did, treat for the family. They would bring home pizza. So every Friday we knew what was going on. So I, I want you to kind of take that concept and piggyback that with uh, the Pareto Principle and Parkinson's Law. So um, on the show notes, I'm going to have a link. Uh, it's called the Time Block Schedule Spreadsheet. Um, there's a couple examples of what a, a single day would look like. There, there's two different versions uh, of what a, a particular day would look like. One version is broken out into you know, like morning, late morning, early afternoon, evening, uh, that sort of thing. And then another version is broken out. It's the one I specifically use. It's broken out by uh, hour. And then finally, there is a schedule for a, a full week. Uh, but basically, think of that, that Taco Tuesday or that Pizza Friday and uh, put some really tight constraints in your schedule. And insert activities or things you want to get done into that schedule and then your productivity will will start to increase so for example here's what i mean i know three days a week i'm, I'm going to the gym between you know basically 5 a.m and 6 30 a.m okay that's a monday wednesday friday for thank for me that that's always going to happen every day monday through friday from uh, about 7 to 8 a.m I am going to be doing uh, a personal thing that I like to do, and that's just research real estate deals and you know vet them out to see if uh, there's any properties that I want to invest in. And once once it hits eight o'clock, that's when my workday stops. So I stop that personal activity. So I've got that artificial deadline. So I've got that Parkinson's law working. So you know if I start a little late at seven ten. I've only got 50 minutes. So what that does is that forces me to look through things quicker. Um, but it also, what it does is I know that every week I've got that blocked in. I also have every uh, Friday night is date night with my wife. Now, I, I know things come up and sometimes that doesn't actually happen, but uh, we try our best to have a date night. So um, Friday night's kind of our night. If we have to switch it to Saturday night, sometimes that's fine. But we, we always try and, you know, get a sitter or, or make sure that the kids are taken care of so that, that me and my wife can spend some uh, quality time together. Now, I also try and get together with my friends uh, that I went to school with or that I like to hang out with that I don't see all that often. I've got to be really, really intentional about that. So, um, that also happens on a Friday. So what that looks like in a given month is I might see my friends one time and I hopefully have a date night with my wife three times. So in four weeks and a month, I've got three nights with uh, my wife and one night with my friends on a Friday night. But it's really easy to schedule because I have that that time bucket. You know, Friday night is is basically, you know, you can call it whatever you want, you know, relationship uh, enhancement or or whatever, but I, I've got that time. And then Monday through Thursday uh, after work, for example, like 
I don't know, call it 5.30 to about 8.30. Uh, that That's like sacred time. I mean, I don't get to see the kids that much. That's the only time I really get to hang out with them uh, during the week. And, and I'm trying to help them out with homework, uh, you know, put them to bed, spend some quality time, do all that good stuff. And uh, because of that, I try my best not to have any other obligations during the week. So, um, you know, if I'm meeting with a group of friends or I have some sort of, um, you know, church function or, uh, you know, real estate showings or anything like that, um, I try my best not to schedule it during that time. So I've got a little a little goal that I, I try to protect uh, three out of four nights, you know, Monday through Thursday. And I try my best to uh, stick to that. Uh, another little trick that you can use is when you get home from work, turn off your cell phone or, or whatever. Um, you know, that, that's a real good way to, uh, avoid the tyranny of the urgent. And if you have a type of job where you think people absolutely have to, to get to you, I, I would still suggest turning off the phone and just leaving a voicemail saying, uh, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm spending time with my, uh, my family right now, but if this is a true emergency, please call my wife's cell phone and she will get me and you can leave your wife's cell phone. Now, <laughs> now if someone hears that message now, all of a sudden they're on the hook for, for thinking, Oh man, do I really want to disturb, uh, disturb this guy? You know, I've got to actually go through the gatekeeper, right? I got to go through his wife to get to him. That's um, so that, that the cool thing there is you've got other people making the decision of whether something is urgent or not. And they're like, uh, yeah, I guess this can wait till tomorrow. I don't have to call this person after hours. So, so that's a little trick, but, uh, turning off your phone or at least putting it in a different room until, you know, the kids go to bed. And then if you have to check your email, God forbid, uh, at nine o'clock at night or whatever, that's, that's something you, you can maybe do. You know, so basically you just create a time slot or a work bucket for every activity that you want to accomplish. So, um, you know, I, I used a couple examples earlier. Say you wanted to, I don't know, improve your golf game or <laughs> learn how to bowl or play the guitar or whatever it is. Uh, you know, you probably can't dedicate an hour every day to that, but you could probably dedicate a couple hours uh, once a week or, or every other week. And by, by blocking that out on a schedule, basically making an appointment with yourself. Um, and if you plan ahead, which is the one hack of this episode, right? Keep planning ahead. Uh, you can get a lot more done and then you piggyback Pareto and Parkinson and all of a sudden, uh, you're getting a whole lot done in a short amount of time couple other parting tricks uh, for you white-collar workers that spend a lot of time in front of a computer. Um, man, if, if that's you, you you absolutely have to become a fan of uh, Ari Mizell and read Less Doing, More Living. He's also got a podcast. I'll probably play some clips from that coming up in the future episodes. Um, but his, his whole thing is managing your inbox, and he basically has a you know, the quest for the zero inbox where you actually have no emails or you're, you're checking your email very infrequently. Uh, but a couple quick little hacks there for you guys that struggle with emails and how to manage that. Um, there is a service called Unroll Me. Uh, 
U-N-R-O-L-L me. Uh, it's really good if you have like a Hotmail or a Yahoo or a Gmail. But basically, you, you sign up for Unroll Me. But if you get junk emails, it, you can unsubscribe. But if you get emails that you, you like, like I get some things from Reebok and some various health and activewear. If you like those emails, um, it basically puts them all in one email and it summarizes them for you. So instead of getting like 20 emails a day of like junk emails or or emails that you sort of might like, I don't know, like a Groupon or something like that, you will actually get one email a day and you just click on that one email and then you can scroll down and it's got like screenshots of each of those emails. So that's a really convenient way to, uh, free up the clutter of your, your personal inbox. Um, if you have an inbox for a company, you know, you you can't like give away your password to that. So the unroll me thing doesn't work all that well. Uh, however, you're probably still getting junk mail. Uh, you can set up an Outlook rule that anything with the word unsubscribe in the body of the text, you can send that directly to your deleted items. So <laughs> that's one quick way to not even see some of those junk mails uh, in your inbox. So there's a ton more email hacks. Um, I, I may do something more in the future, but if you want a, a jump start on that, I definitely recommend Any and Everything by Ari Mizell. He, he's the email expert in that field, okay? And the last thing I want to talk about is, is the... Um, kind of the new school time management and this all this this has to do with automating outsourcing and eliminating and I just want to give you uh one quick story and then that a few examples and you guys can just you can just run with it so um just to to frame it up all right so you know if you if you ever say you're too busy to do certain things you don't have enough time well just think of some of the things that you can eliminate and here's a simple here's a simple example and it's basically just simple math. So um, figure out how much you make per hour, okay? You take your salary, figure it out, um, and then think about mowing your lawn. Uh, now, I know some people that are weird actually like to mow <laughs> their lawn. I don't personally like to mow my lawn. So if mowing your lawn takes one hour, um and you can pay the local neighborhood kid less than your hourly rate you're actually better off paying someone to mow your lawn, outsourcing that, you free up that hour, then theoretically you could use that one hour to make you know, more money. So if you pay someone 15 bucks to mow your lawn and you can use that same hour on your side business or your real job or whatever and make 50 bucks an hour, um, that's a really, really good trade-off. So you, you need to start thinking about maybe outsourcing some of these tasks like you know, housekeeping or, or mowing the lawn or, or things of that nature to free up your time. But I'm going to give you two quick examples of how to outsource things. Uh, there's two services uh, that I use frequently. I actually don't think I could do this podcast without these services. Uh, the first one is called Fiverr, uh, F-I-V-V. ER, I believe, and it's all sorts of crazy services that you can get for for starting at $5 and up. So, for example, you can get voiceover work for podcasts. Huh, I wonder who could use something like that. Um, You can also get, um, you know, virtual assistants. You can get 
three hours of data entry for five dollars. I mean, some of it's it's absolutely ridiculous. So if you if you want to scroll around on Fiverr, it's a it's a pretty interesting site, and you'd be amazed at some of the services that are available out there for outsourcing. Uh, and then the the next one that I use, and it's one of my favorites. Uh, again, I learned this from Ari Mizell's material. It's a, it's a thing called Fancy Hands, and uh, you basically get it's a service you can pay the the lowest subscription they have is for twenty nine dollars a month, and you get five tasks. Now, a task is anything that someone could do sitting at a computer that theoretically takes about fifteen or twenty minutes. So I use the daylights out of this service. You know, if if I've got a clip I want to play for the show, I just send it to Fancy Hands and say, hey, go to YouTube, find this video, extract the MP3 file, send it on to me, and there it is, boom, sitting, ready, and waiting for me. So uh, it's a really amazing service. Some of the other things I've done, I've I've actually <laughs> had them plan an entire date for my wife and I. Um, I go, Hey, I want to take my wife somewhere nice. Um, maybe somewhere downtown and a restaurant, uh, then I don't know, catch a play or something, uh, see what you can come up with. And they'll, they'll send you like three options. They're like, okay, you've got this show that goes here. Here are three activities. Here's three restaurants. And you can just say, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do option one, option three and option two. And then they set up reservations for you. It's, it's pretty fascinating. I mean, it's, it's really whatever you can write in an email and instruct someone to do, they can do. Um, I've even, you know, my wife was walking in a store and she saw some sort of like cowboy boot that she liked. And, you know, me trying to be the good husband, I, I quickly snap a picture of it, right? I have no idea what this, where where one would get this cowboy boot or how much it costs. And I definitely wasn't going to buy it right then and there in front of her because it was sort of a surprise gift. So what do I do? I send it on to Fancy Hands and say, hey, my wife is interested in this boot. Can you find me where I can buy this at, how much it would cost, what's the best price? And sure enough, they send me three different um, prices and locations. And, you know, you can order it online or you can go directly to the store. Here's the price range. I mean, it's really, really pretty fascinating. So uh, you may want to consider trying to nerd out on some of that outsourcing and eliminating. Um, I know we're all a little prideful and, and think we're irreplaceable, but <laughs> there are a lot of things and a lot of tasks that others can do just as good, if not better than you. So anyway, hopefully you guys have something to think about as far as productivity and scheduling, but your your big thing you're going to want to do is you're always going to want to plan like on a Sunday night, you're going to want to plan your whole week ahead in general. And then every day at the same time, you're going to want to plan your day ahead. It's a keystone habit, right? So um, every day at, for example, 3 o'clock, you plan out what you're going to do the next day. Uh, hopefully, you'll have some bucket activities that you can throw in there. You know, between 7 and 8, I'm going to do this. Between 10 a.m. and noon, I'm going to do this. And you uh, use that Parkinson's law and that Pareto principle to your advantage. And if you can uh, consistently plan your day ahead, uh, you will start uh, attacking life and um, taking control. 
instead of just kind of drifting through life and letting things happen to you, you will be more in charge and uh, hopefully you can take advantage of that. So anyway, that's all we got for this show. Uh, If you're interested, stick around for some uh, really fascinating extra credit. Other than that, we'll uh, catch up with you next time. See ya. Thanks for listening. We hope you found a few nuggets of wisdom that you can apply to your life. Until next time, take action. Keep hacking and stacking your way to success. There's nothing wrong with your mobile device. You're venturing into deeper meaning and higher learning. It's time for Extra Credit. Extra Credit. It's my privilege to introduce uh, Mr. Kokel tonight. And um, I just want to sort of give a little bit of a background. I'm sure a lot of you have uh, already heard much about him. But I wanted to uh, share with you a little bit of the background before um, having him come up here. Uh, He has joked uh, on occasion that he started out thinking he was too smart to become a Christian and ended up giving his life for the defense of the Christian faith. So um, he became a Christian in 1973, and Greg has worked with Cambodian refugees in Thailand, uh, college students in India, and Christians in five communist countries, including the Soviet Union before the Iron Curtain fell. Uh, A central theme of his speaking and writing is that Christianity can compete in the marketplace of ideas when it's properly understood and properly articulated. And he's emphasized down-to-earth Christian living, and our speaker has had many opportunities to argue in the public arena for the credibility of the Christian faith. Uh, Through debates and lectures, he's spoken at over 30 universities, though this is his first trip to the University of California at Berkeley. right. So again, we're very excited to have him here on our campus, and uh, he has been featured on James Dobson's Focus on the Family radio broadcast. He's been quoted in the LA Times, the US News and World Report. He's an award-winning writer, and he is co-author of Relativism, Feet Firmly Planted in Midair, which is the topic of our um, talk tonight. And this is uh, his book. I have the privilege to hold it here. (laughs) And it will be actually available after this talk uh, uh, at a table. Um, Also, he's the founder and president of Stand to Reason and hosts a weekly live radio talk show advocating clear-thinking Christianity and defending the Christian worldview. So without further ado, it is my privilege, and I hope you can join me in uh, offering him a warm welcome to Mr. Greg Kokel. Thank you. I, I, am, I am honestly very touched by your warmth. Uh, I'm quite stunned, actually. I, I'm getting used to, uh, to Berkeley, though. It's a little bit difficult whenever I go out of town because I'm from this Southern California, Los Angeles in particular. And uh, so we got some L.A. Angelinos, right? You know, I, I noticed a little smog over here, and I think these Angelinos just flew up here and exhaled. Um, 
I actually have a hard time. I come to a place like this, and the air is so, um, what's the word? Clean, you know? I'm like Woody Allen. I don't trust air I can't see, you know? So uh, it takes me a little while to get used to it, and usually what I have to do is I wait till the cars are stopped at the stoplight, and I run around behind the back of one, and I clamp my lips around the... Uh, Exhaust pipe, take a few deep breaths, and there's no longer any hydrocarbon withdrawals, you know. <laughs> Actually, this is my first time um, in this capacity at the University of California, Berkeley, though I was on campus 32 years ago. And the last time I was here is because I lived in the community. I lived just right down the street in Albany. Uh, my life was quite a bit different then. And... Uh, and Berkeley, I think, was quite a bit different. I don't know if you all are aware of the heritage that you have. I'm sure some of you do uh, know of the heritage. But the Berkeley that I knew had started a revolution in thinking in this country. And the students there were willing to ask the tough questions. The students were willing to challenge the status quo. They were unwilling to go along with the crowd. They were unwilling to accept convention for the sake of conventions for the sake of convention. And in short, the students of the Berkeley of the 60s and the 70s wanted to think for themselves. Now, I'm counting uh, this evening and tomorrow evening, when I'll be speaking in the same venue, on the same spirit of intellectual honesty. Because now there's a new status quo. Now there's a new convention. Now there's a new crowd that demands compliance. And it's the ideas of this new establishment that I want to challenge tonight. I am here, uh, I think, in the spirit of the Berkeley of the 60s to challenge a status quo that doesn't allow, to a great degree, uh, people to think creatively about what many people have accepted as true. I'm here tonight as a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, you have to know that there was a time when I never would have imagined my, myself saying those words 32 years ago when I was in this community myself. As uh, Manny mentioned, I thought I was too smart to become a Christian. I thought all Christians, I'm telling the truth, but I thought all Christians were either dumb or ugly. <laughs> or both. <laughs> this is why they went to church. They couldn't think for themselves, so they had somebody else think for them. And, uh, and they were just too socially unacceptable to find acceptance anywhere else. So they went to the church where one of the rules were, were that you had to love one another. It was just pasted up there in the back, you know. <laughs> but I was persuaded that Christianity was worth thinking about. And now, of course, the irony is I've given my life to uh, defending Christianity because I actually think Christianity is true. When I say I think it's true, I don't mean that it's my truth. I don't mean that it's my cultural convention. I don't mean it's my truth, small t, the way I happen to use the language. I think it's actually so. That is, uh, the real McCoy. I think that the way Jesus understood the world to be was accurate. Now, I could be mistaken on that, but I'm not making it up. I'm not just emoting. I've got an argument. I've done a lot of thinking about this over the years. And what I'd like to do this evening, I have a very modest goal, by the way. I'm not here to convert you if you're not a follower of Christ. That's not my goal tonight. My goal is much more modest than that. My goal is to put an intellectual stone in your shoe. I want to give you something worth thinking about. I hope that I make some points this evening and tomorrow evening on controversial issues that you have not heard before, maybe, that gets you thinking, that gets you questioning the status quo. 
that gets you challenging the conventions that have been handed down to you in this postmodern age. And this evening, I'd like you to consider some thoughtful challenges on one of the two most important things you can think about, ethical truth. Tomorrow, we'll be talking about religious truth. And I think, ultimately, the two are related. Now, the thinking on both of these issues has changed pretty radically in the last 30 years. Let me tell you of an encounter I had with a young lady in a chiropractor's office just a few years ago. Actually, I think they should call it a chiropractor's office, you know, for obvious reasons. But I went in there to get cracked one day and uh, had some back problems, and the young lady was prepping me for uh, the adjustment. And so I like to talk to people and get their ideas, you know, just to ask them a few questions and figure out what they're thinking about critical issues. So I asked her if I could ask her a few questions, and she said, sure. And I said, do you think morality is objective in some sense, or is it just subjective? Is it just up to the individual? And she said, well, what do you mean by morality? And I thought, this is not a good start, you know. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, morality, what's right and what's wrong, you know, ethics. And I'm going on, and it's clear that she's having a hard time following my, my point. So I thought I'd give her what we call in philosophy a clear case example. This is something to get things rolling, to remove the initial ambiguity, something like who's buried in Grant's tomb, you know, that kind of thing. How long was the Hundred Years' War, you know? <laughs> like one guy said, I would have dialed 911, but I couldn't remember the number, you know, that kind of thing. So, so I said to her, is murder wrong, the taking of an innocent human life without justification? Well, I said, well, what? <laughs> well, I'm thinking, she said. Well, uh, this was the, e what do you, what's to think about? This is the easy one, you know? She said, well, I don't know. It's just, it's like, that's hard. It kind of depends on the circumstance. Okay, this wasn't easy enough for her. Is it okay to torture babies for fun? <laughs> <laughs> then she said, something that really sets the stage for what I want to talk about this evening. She said, I wouldn't want them to do that to my baby. Now, you think about the question I asked her. Did I ask her about her preferences or her desires or her wants? No, I asked for a judgment about a conduct, what she thought of torturing babies, and she talked to me about herself. I said, I'm sorry, you misunderstood the question. I was talking about the action, not about your feelings or preferences of what you would want. It, even if you wouldn't want that to happen to somebody's baby, what if somebody did want that to happen to their baby? What if they were torturing that baby themselves for the fun it brought them? Would that be okay? Would that action be right? And under any circumstance, in any culture, at any point of time, could it possibly be morally justified to torture a child just for the pleasure that it brought you. Long pause. Mm. Finally, she said, you know, I think people should be allowed to decide for themselves. Now, I'm not making this up. I make some things up, but this I didn't make up. <laughs> What's going on here? Oh, by the way, I think that, to, you know, in her defense, I suspect that if this woman would have been awakened in the middle of the night by the screams of a child next door who was being tormented by her parents for the pleasure it brought them, she would consider these people barbaric and would probably picked up the phone and dialed what? 
911, if she could remember the number. But it also goes to show how difficult it was, though in that circumstance, her natural moral common sense would have informed properly her judgments on the issue when I had to talk to her, when we sat down and discussed the issue a little bit, and she had to think through the process, she could not bring herself to condemn torturing babies for fun as an objective moral harm. Now, what's going on here? I'll tell you what's going on. It's the power of an idea, and the idea has a name, and the name is the topic of our discussion this evening, moral relativism. Moral relativism, the point of view that is held, a lot of folks haven't heard the term before, but it is what motivates statements like, who are you to say when there's a judgment, morally speaking, on someone's behavior, or don't push your morality on me. Now, why would somebody say, don't push your morality on me? Because they think it's illegitimate to push morality. That is, there is no objective, universal, moral set of principles that apply to all people. Rather, when it comes to moral choices, morality is up to the individual. Think of the difference between ice cream and insulin. With flavors, ice cream, you choose what you like, what's true for you. Different strokes for different folks, we used to say in the 60s. With medicine, though, you don't choose what you like. You choose what, heal, what heals, what's true for the circumstance. Moral relativism is the view that morality is like ice cream and not like insulin. So if I said something like, um, premarital sex is wrong, or abortion is wrong, or uh, rape is wrong. On this view, those statements are the same kind of statements as if I were to say, I like butter pecan ice cream because it's delicious. It's just simply a preference. It's true for me. The question of right and wrong is purely an individual matter because there are no true objective universal ethical obligations or moral principles. So two people can be in the exact same set of circumstances on this view. And now I'm describing what moral relativism is. Two people can be in exactly the same set of circumstances but have totally different truths when it comes to morals. Now, these truths, moral truths, could be real cultural conventions like, say, putting out cookies for Santa Claus is a real cultural convention, but Santa Claus isn't real. And on this view, real moral rules are fictions just like Santa Claus. And my apologies to any undergraduates who have just ruined your Christmas. <laughs> Everybody's morality is, is equal because, and therefore should be respected and tolerated because nobody's morality is any better than anybody else's. And that's why you shouldn't force your morality on other people. Now, moral relativism is in contrast to another view. And tonight, I'm going, going to critique moral relativism to try to defend this other view. This other view is called moral objectivism or moral realism. And on this other view, there are true objective, universal, ethical obligations and moral principles. It's not up to us. I mean, ultimately, each person has to make his own decision about what is right, but the answer to questions of a moral nature is an objective thing. We've got to figure out what that right thing is, but the answer is there. We don't make it up ourselves. We discover it. 
So the truth isn't individual on this. It's not like ice cream. It's more like insulin. We don't invent morality. On this view, by the way, moral rules are frequently self-evident, obvious, many of them at least, and uh, like the example of the torturing babies for, for fun. And, of course, if it turns out that morals are objective in some sense, if they have independent legitimacy apart from whether people agree with it or not, then everybody's morality is not equal. Just like everybody's math is not equal and everybody's medicine is not equal, not everybody's morality is equal. Now, why is this distinction important? I just want you to think for just a moment about the significance of this question for the sake of our culture. What is it that holds culture together? The thing that holds culture together is law. And law is, the, is, is, is on shaky grounds these days. Why? Because law has something that should be beneath it. Aristotle said that law stands upon a necessary foundation of morality. You hear people say, well, you can't legislate morality. If he's right, and I think he is, uh, morality is the only thing you can legislate. That is, if you don't have a moral justification for your use of force, if you are not using the power of government for the common good, but just using it for your own personal pleasure, that's despotism. That's fascism. No, all laws are tied to some kind of morality. Now, if, if laws get their legitimacy from morality, but it turns out, on relativistic views, that morality is nothing in particular, then there is no foundation for law, and there is nothing that helps to determine whether a law is a good one or not. All you have left is law. All you have left is raw power. Now, relativism is the prevailing view in our society. This is why it's so simple for people to say, who are you to say, and who are you to push your morality on me? Unfortunately, like a lot of prevailing views, and this is what I was referring to in my opening comments about Berkeley of the 60s and the 70s, is that these things are absorbed by the culture and they're not questioned. We are coming down Telegraph Avenue, and I, I drove by Moe's Bookstore for the first time in 32 years, still there. And there was a young lady that was selling little trinkets, little um, bracelet-type, beaded bracelets. And for all I know, she was there 32 years ago, too, because <laughs> it was the same kind of stuff they were selling on the street. But on the back of her little display, it had a statement, a sticker that she put there, and she was making her philosophic stand there, and it said, question assumptions. Well, I like that. And here's an assumption that we ought to question, that moral rules are relative, that it's up to the individual and nobody should judge and nobody should push their morality on somebody else. I want to question that tonight. And so the goal of, of this evening is to expose the myth of what I call moral neutrality. And I also want to talk about some serious problems with the, the way tolerance is, is characterized and the way it's practiced. And then I'd like to give you an actual argument why I think moral relativism is false. And when I'm done, there's going to be an opportunity to interact together here. So we're going to have some mics set up in the back, and for a good half hour or more, if you'd like to stay a little longer, that's fine with me. Uh, I will entertain your questions or your challenges to what I offer you tonight. Remember, this is an open forum place. This is where we work these things out 
in a charitable atmosphere so we can get down to the very truth of things. And I look forward to that time together with you. Now, sometimes relativism is uh, expressed in very sophisticated ways. And since I'm going to critique relativism this evening, I don't want to be guilty of mischaracterizing it or setting up a straw man, so I want to read you something that was written by Faye Waddleton on this issue of morality. Now, Faye Waddleton, many of you might know, is the former president of Planned Parenthood. Actually, philosophically, we have very little in common. But I am not reading this to ridicule somebody I disagree with. I'm reading it because it's very nicely written. In fact, it's so well written that you're, some of you might think, gee, I don't know if I'm, if I'm supposed to, from where I'm coming from, that I'm supposed to agree with what she says, but I don't know how I can disagree without sounding foolish. It's that nicely done. But there's a flaw in what she says. And I want you to see as I read this if you can find out what the flaw is. Quote, Like most parents, I think that a sense of moral responsibility is one of the greatest gifts I can give my child. But teaching morality does not mean imposing my moral views on others. It means sharing wisdom and giving reasons for believing as I do and then trusting others to think and judge for themselves. My parents' morals were deeply rooted in religious conviction, but tempered by tolerance, the essence of which is respect for other people's views. They taught me that reasonable people may differ on moral issues and that fundamental respect for others is morality of the highest order. I've devoted my career to ensuring a world in which my daughter Felicia can inherit that legacy. I hope the tolerance and respect I show her as a, as a parent is reinforced by the work she sees me doing every day, fighting for the right of all individuals to make their own moral decisions about, about childbearing. Of course, she's talking about abortion on demand there. Seventy-five years ago, Margaret Sanger founded Planned Parenthood to liberate individuals from the mighty engines of repression. As she wrote, the men and women of America are demanding that they be allowed to mold their lives, not at the arbitrary command of church or state, but as their conscience and their judgment may dictate. Then she closes, I'm proud to continue that struggle, to defend the rights of all people to their own beliefs. When others try to inflict their views on me, my daughter, or anyone else, that's not morality. It's tyranny. It's unfair, and it's un-American, close quote. Like I said, I, I think that's pretty impressive. Sounds so sensible. Sounds so reasonable. It sounds so tolerant. But there's a fundamental flaw. First, what's her view of morality? Well, going back to some of her comments, she said, we should trust others to think and judge for themselves, that fundamental respect for others is morality of the highest order, and Americans should be allowed to mold their lives as their conscience and their judgment may dictate. Now, it sounds to me like she's relativistic. In other words, she's promoting moral neutrality and non-interference. Everybody gets to make their own decisions about morality, and we should not be interfering with the decisions that she makes. Okay, so what's her flaw? Faye Waddleton errs in assuming that there is such a thing as morally neutral ground. Now, what do I mean by morally neutral ground? This is a very important concept. Morally neutral ground is a place where you can stand in which you have your own views about moral things and you keep them to yourself. Oh, you might report them to others by way of reporting autobiography by saying, well, this is my personal views. But you never, ever act as if your moral convictions have anything to do with other people. In fact, you are to be neutral with regards to those other people. Now, other people are on their own kind of island of moral neutrality, right? 
They have their views. They keep them to themselves. They don't enforce them on other people. They don't act like they have anything to do with other people. That would be impolite. And there's a space in between these islands of moral neutrality that all of us are supposed to be standing on, and that space has a name in our common vocabulary now. What do you think that space between moral views is called? Tolerance. Tolerance. Such that if you step off of your island into that space, if you act like your view ought to apply to other people, and other people are wrong by your standards, you've violated the neutrality and you've become an intolerant person. And let's face it, intolerance is one of the strongest um, uh, challenges you could ever offer to somebody in the context of our culture. Nobody wants to be intolerant. The word is used frequently for those who get out of line. The problem is, Faye Waddleton is not neutral. How do I know that? Because she told me right in her own piece. Peace. She wants to continue the struggle to defend the rights of all people to their own beliefs, and then she has this to say of those who beliefs on morality are different from hers. They are unfair, they are un-American, and they are tyrannous. Do you see that those are all moral labels? Each one is a moral judgment. If you disagree with her view of tolerance, that all points of view are equally valid, then she will not tolerate your view. Not only that, she'll even use the law to impose her morality on you. How do I know that? Because she said so. Where'd she say that? Quote, I have devoted my career to ensuring a world in which my daughter Felicia can inherit that legacy. What legacy is she talking about? Her point of view. And what exactly is she doing to ensure that her daughter inherits the legacy of her point of view. She's a lobbyist. She's on Capitol Hill seeking to prevail upon men and women of power to pass legislation which will force people to live according to her sense of morality, even if it violates the morality of those people the laws now apply to. In other words, she is saying, I have devoted my career to ensuring a world in which my point of view is enforced. And to sharpen the point just a, uh, a bit more, just about 10 years ago now, in May 1994, Congress passed a law making, a, making it a federal offense to block an abortion clinic. Now, regardless of what you think of that law, I want you to listen to what Pamela Moraldo, at that time the president of Planned Parenthood, said about this law. Quote, listen carefully. This law goes to show that no one can force their viewpoint on someone else. Now, that's funny because all laws force a viewpoint. That's the nature of law, ladies and gentlemen. Now, I'm not using these illustrations because I'm mad at Faye Waddleton or Pamela Moraldo or Planned Parenthood. And I'm not using these illustrations to object to what they are doing. I do not object. Please understand me. I do not object to them going on Capitol Hill and making their case and trying to get their point of view enshrined in law. This is the American way. Everybody gets a voice. Everybody gets a vote. More power to them. Here's my simple point. It's not neutral. Everybody in the game has a moral point of view they think 
is right and nobody's neutral. Waddleton implies she is neutral and unbiased and therefore tolerant when she's not. She talks neutrality yet still seeks to force her viewpoint. Why? Because she's offering an ethic which sounds fair and tolerant, but it's a bankrupt moral system. It's called relativism. And every single person who promotes relativism falls prey to this problem. It's not neutral. It's not even tolerant, as you can see. It's very persuasive. It's also misleading and fallacious. This kind of neutrality and tolerance is a myth. Now, let me give you a further illustration of this because I'm really, my talk is in two parts tonight. I want you to see the myth of neutrality and the myth of tolerance, and then I'm going to give you an argument against relativism. But this may be the most important thing for you, for you to understand because, frankly, I do not think most people see this. And after I give a few more illustrations, I hope it jumps out, of, out in front of you every single time something like what I'm going to describe to you happens because there is a shell game going on here. There is a trick that's going on with tolerance. I call it the passive-aggressive tolerance trick. Now, I don't think that people who use this trick are doing it maliciously all the time. They have absorbed it from a culture that does not think about what they're doing. And by the way, I'm not pointing my finger at a non-Christian culture. Christians and non-Christians are the same in this regard. Well, what is that trick? Tomorrow night, I'm going to be talking about religious pluralism. And I'm going to be making the case that there is a religious point of view that is correct, and therefore, others are false. Now, generally, in the context of our culture, all you have to do is suggest that you believe something along those lines and people get very exercised. And I'm going to give you some illustrations about uh, TV shows that I've been on, and some very interesting things happened simply because I made this kind of claim. But the standard way that people respond to this is to say that I'm, what do you think? Intolerant. It's an interesting response because I make a claim about the nature of the world and then somebody says that I'm mean. Doesn't that strike you as a little bit odd? Can you imagine if you went to your doctor and the doctor said, you've got cancer? The do and you said to your doctor, you're mean. <laughs> I'm going to go to another doctor who's nicer. But of course, this would be inappropriate because it, the claim is just a claim by people who make it like me about what they think is actually true. Now, I could be mistaken. Maybe I'm wrong. But I'm not mean, it seems to me. I might be mean for other reasons, but not <laughs> for that. So my question is always this whenever anybody says that I'm intolerant. I ask a simple question. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Because the word intolerant can mean a number of different things. But I want to know what they mean by that when they call me intolerant. Now, sometimes they're not that cooperative or they think it's pretty obvious and they just repeat themselves. I mean you're intolerant. What are you, deef? You know, that kind of thing. No, I got you the first time. I just want to know what you think it means. Well, you think you're right, by golly. 
as this gentleman I'll tell you about in more detail tomorrow night on the TV show said, you have the corner and all the truth, you know, that kind of thing. You think you're right and everybody else is wrong. <laughs> I say, yeah, I do. <laughs> now, I could be mistaken, though, but I'm not making it up. I've got reasons for believing what I do. I'm not just emoting here. I mean, I've got an argument. And you're going to have to disabuse me of my reasons if you want to change my mind on this. But let me ask you a question, and here's where I'm going to show you the trick. Let me ask you a question. The things that you believe contrary to me. We obviously disagree, right? Yeah. The things that you believe contrary to me, are those things right or wrong? Are your beliefs right? What do you think he's going to say? No. <laughs> Everything I believe is false. Please don't pay any attention to me. <laughs> they think they're right. Now, sometimes they'll, they'll, there's a little move at this point. They'll say, well, I'm right for me. And then my response is, well, if you're just right for you, why are you talking to me? I mean, it seems very much like you're trying to correct me, right? And if it's just your truth, well, then keep it to yourself. Don't get off your little island of neutrality. But he's off his island, right? He's totally in my face. Now I know there's a trick going on. He thinks he's right. Wait a minute. Why is it, I say, that when I think I'm right, I'm intolerant, but when you think you're right... You're just right. <laughs> what am I missing here? Now, this demands an answer. And I've gotten answers on occasion. And here's the answer that I've gotten. You ready for this? The reason you're intolerant and I'm not is because I'm actually right. <laughs> I promise you, this happened more than once. Do you see the trick here? Everybody thinks they're right. That's why they believe what they do. To believe something is to hold that it's true. If you didn't hold it was true, you wouldn't believe it. You'd believe something else you thought was true. So why is it then when somebody that, whose ideas you, you don't like says that they're right, all of a sudden you have the liberty to call them names? See, this is all this is. This tolerance trick is just a way of silencing opinions that people don't want to hear. Look, if you don't want to hear my opinion, tell me. I don't want to blab at you if you don't want to listen. Walk away. Change the subject. Say, shut up. That's fine. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to force my view down your throat. But you see, these kind of people aren't walking away. They're doing some pushing of their own. And usually it's a lot more hostile and angry than anything I've offered. Now, the point I'm making here is there are right ways and wrong ways to deal with these kinds of issues. The charge of intolerance is not one of them. The charge of intolerance is almost always a trick. People don't know they're doing the trick. They don't know any better. Now you do. And if you are being victimized by this trick, you can ask the same questions that I've just asked. And if you are a victimizer of this trick, stop doing it. Do something more intelligent than calling names. Deal with the ideas themselves. Now, there's a reason why this kind of thing happens. 
people are very confused about what tolerance actually is. I was in Des Moines, Iowa in January, and if anybody's from east of the Mississippi, well, actually, that's not east of the Mississippi, but it's pretty close. It's cold in January in Des Moines. And I was doing some uh, teaching there uh, with students from University of Iowa at Ames, which is about an hour, hour away, but I did some speaking in Des Moines. And there was a Christian school there, and they asked me to come up and speak to the religion class of the seniors. And so I said, sure, I'll be glad to. But I got up to this class, and there was about 10 seniors sitting in a row facing me. Now, I don't usually like speaking to high school kids because it's like talking to a painting, you know. <laughs> yeah. You never, you know what I'm talking about. You never know what's going on. They're just sitting there like this, and you, give, you crack a really good joke, you know? And, and they sit there. Are you going to laugh at that? Are you going to laugh? No, I, we're not going to laugh. So these kids were in true form, like stumps on a log there, you know, and so I'm trying to draw them out, and I want to talk to them about this tolerance business, and so I, um, I, I finally I ask them, what is the prevailing ethic or moral principle or a thing you should always be and in our culture, and, you know, I'm finally, finally we get this tolerance thing out. Oh, yeah, we've got to be tolerant. That's really important. So I wrote the word tolerance on the board. Then I said, what is that thing? You say we ought to be tolerant. Yeah, every one of them, Yeah. What does that mean? Back to the painting again. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like the Last Supper. They're all sitting on the opposite side of the table. Frozen, you know. So I helped him out a bit. And finally, we got a definition on the board. And you tell me if this sounds right. Tolerance is the, view, is the, is the, is the point of view that all views are equally valid, particularly when it comes to morality and religious views. You know, all views uh, are equally valid. So if you think yours is right and somebody else is wrong, then as we talked about earlier, you violated tolerance. So we got that down and, and people were, you know, they wrote it down on the board and they got it. And so they're nodding their head. You know, I, I had them get out some papers, take some notes. You know, you might need this someday, even though it's only high school, I understand. But then I turned around and I wrote another sentence on the board. And here's what I wrote. I said, Jesus is the Messiah, and Jews who reject him are wrong. Ooh, them's fighting words, right? <laughs> man, I didn't even get the sentence finished before that picture came alive, man. It was technicolor, moving, kinetic speed, you know. MTV right there, you know. This gal in the corner waving her hand, you can't say that. Now, keep in mind, this is a Christian high school. You know, I actually expected a little different response. But here, even from people who I think should have a different point of view on this one, you shouldn't say that. You can't say that, is what she said. How would you like it if somebody told you you were wrong? <laughs> see, now you got it, right? Do you see that? I said, it doesn't bother me a bit. Like you're doing right now? <laughs> It doesn't bother me a bit. Why should it? Now, let me just make a little excursus here, and I'm going to be like dad for a moment, all right? Do you see what this understanding of tolerance is producing? This young lady felt that she had the right to be ticked off 
at me and tell me about it simply because I had expressed a view she didn't like. What this definition of tolerance is doing is not causing people to be more open-minded and charitable and kind and warm to people of opposing views. It allows people to feel angry when they have to listen to something they don't agree with. This is not pushing our young people towards maturity. It is pushing them back to childhood, ladies and gentlemen. How would you like it if somebody said you were wrong? It doesn't bother me a bit. I'm a grown-up. And if we are to be grown-ups... We are to learn that everybody is not going to think the way we think and we don't have to raise a ruckus because somebody shares an alternate point of view. Then I went back to the board because now I'm being challenged big time, right? And I I circled the first statement, which is the definition of tolerance. All views are equally valid. And I asked them a question. I said, is this a view that all views are equally valid? What do you think? Is this a view? Well, the graduate students help out here. Come on. (laughs) Yeah, it's a view. I mean, this one they got, even the high schoolers. Yeah, that's a view. Then I asked them the hard one. I went to the second statement. Jesus is Messiah, and those who reject him are wrong, and Jews who reject him are wrong. I circled that Sentence, and I said, now, is that a view? Long silence. Finally, grudgingly, yeah, that's a view. Well, that creates an odd situation, doesn't it? If tolerance means that all views are equally valid, then the view that the Jews are wrong for rejecting Jesus as the Messiah is just as valid as any other view. In other words, on this view of tolerance, on this definition, all views are equally valid, including those views that say all views are not equally valid. (laughs) All views are equally valid and not equally valid at the same time. You know what I call that? Boing. (laughs) Contradiction. This definition cannot be lived out, and nobody does. That's why they fall into the passive-aggressive tolerance trick. You want to know how to get out of this mess? You have to return to the correct definition of tolerance, not the newfangled version. You see, the definition of tolerance has undergone a change. Tolerance does not mean that all points of view are equally valid. True tolerance is all human beings are equally valid. All human beings should get equal respect. Even if we disagree with them, even if we don't like the views that they have, to tolerate a human being is to go along and and you can use the term put up with if you want, but you show respect for the person who disagrees. That's true tolerance. That's the view of tolerance that has virtue. Not all ideas have equal value. They don't, ladies and gentlemen. Some are good. Some are bad. Some are true. Some are false. 
Some are bright, some are stupid, some are foolish, and some are dangerous. And we ought to have the freedom intellectually to figure out which is which. True tolerance. All human beings have equal value, but all ideas don't have equal value. This is the thing that rescues us from this conundrum. But, of course, that means then that we have to be open to the idea that some ideas are false. Some cherished ideas may be false. And we have to be open to the idea of letting the free flow of ideas to be able to figure out which is which. That was the Berkeley of the 1960s and the 1970s. That was the United States of that time. Things have changed quite a bit. And this isn't a discredit on Berkeley now. That's not my point. My point is the whole culture has changed. And they are largely closed to meaningful, intelligent discussions on issues of morality and religion. And if they were open to it, I think they wouldn't make not only that mistake, but the mistake of relativism. And now I'd like to switch gears. Having talked about what I consider the, the, um, the, the myth of neutral ground and the myth of tolerance, I'd like to give an argument against relativism. Uh, up until now, I really haven't done that. I've just talked about some of the odd things that have attended this issue, but I haven't given you any reason to believe that relativism is false. Maybe, maybe it's true at this point. So now I'm going to give you an argument, and I'm going to argue in a very specific way, and I'm going to tell you what that way is. I am going to rely on something called an intuition. Now, when I use the word intuition, I mean something very precise. I mean the way philosophers use the term. I don't mean uh, a hunch. I don't mean a passing fancy. I don't mean a kind of a feeling about something. I don't mean women's intuition. Though, ladies, I believe in that, but that's not what I have in mind here this evening. I don't mean anything you've ever learned. I don't mean, mean an ability you gain after a long time working in a particular field. You get a second sense about or a sixth sense about. I don't mean, in fact, what I mean by intuition here is something you never learned. It's something you have to begin with. It's the kind of thing that you know, but you don't know how you know it. And if you didn't know these things, you wouldn't know anything else. If I, say, if I were to say to you, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore, what? Socrates is mortal. Now, how did you know that? Everybody always gets it right. Some guy says, well, I learned it in my philosophy class. No, you didn't. You knew that before that class. If I were to say to you, how do you know that given those first two statements, the third one followed, and you were pressed on it, you'd say, well, can't you see that? And if somebody you were talking to couldn't see it, you would be hard-pressed to prove it to them. Well, that is the proof. I mean, there, what's, okay, let me try it again, you'd say. All men are mortal. You got that? Socrates is a man. Got that? Therefore, mm. <laughs> you would think they didn't understand the original terms because there is a sense which, if you understand the first two sentences, the third thing falls right into place. It's a rational intuition. If I said Bill was shorter than Bob and Bob was shorter than Fred, how, what, would we, what would we know about Bill to Fred? Bill was shorter than Fred. Now, I helped you a little bit, you know, with the... <laughs> with the hands there, but you would have figured it out if you just thought about it because there's a transitive property there, and that would be true even if there was no Bill or Fred. This are, these are rational intuitions. These are built in. And as you grow, you're able to access them and make sense of them, but, they, but they're there. And, it, and, and this is true of any properly functioning human being. And if somebody wasn't able to get that stuff, you wouldn't know what to do with them. In fact, you would think something was wrong. Now, I think there are not only rational intuitions, I gave you some examples of that, not only aesthetic intuitions, but I think there are moral intuitions. 
That is, we have the ability to see that some things are objectively wrong. Now, why do I think that? I think that because I listen to the way people talk. I listen to the way people reflect on things. People use words to describe things that they see. I could say, this podium. I'm using a word, podium, to describe this thing in front of me. If I were to say, everybody look at the podium in front of me, and you were obedient, you would know what to do. You would look at the thing that my words referred to. So my words point at something, and you understand that. This is the way we have language. This is how we get along day to day. Now, sometimes words point at physical things. Sometimes they point at non-physical things. I said, you know, I have this idea. And you would all know what I was talking about. I'd have to give you some more details about the idea. But there the word idea is pointing at a non-material thing. So sometimes words can point at material things, and sometimes they point at non-material things, and we, this is the way we talk every single day. Now, we have words in our language that point at moral, non-material things. We use them all the time. They are so built in that we cannot get away from them. Now, I suspect... My suspicion is that the reason that we talk about things in this way, we use certain words, and I'm going to go through some of them in a moment, to describe moral things, to identify moral things in the objective sense, is because we actually are aware of the existence of these objective moral principles. I had a debate two nights ago at the University of Washington on this issue. I started out. Every time I debate this, I've debated about four or five times on this issue. Every single time I tell my audience that what would, it would take for me to win is not only to is for one, I could win by showing them objective moral principles, but I would also prevail if my opponent smuggled into his challenge of my view his own moral principles. In other words, if he tried to defeat objective moral principles by using objective moral principles, you see how that would support my view. Now, I'm saying this to the audience with my opponent sitting right next to me. He's not in one of these little sound booths where he can't hear. <laughs> so I let him know what he's going to do, and I promise you every single debate. People have gotten up. They stood at a podium like this after I made my remarks, and they said something like this. Morals are relative. They're not objective. They're just cultural things. And, you know, when people think like Mr. Kokel thinks, they get all intolerant, and they start wars and do bad things like that. <laughs> well, if those things are bad things and intolerance is a bad thing, then I guess I win, don't I? Now, I, listen, I don't care about winning. What I want people to see is the truth of the matter. We talk a certain way because we're in touch with something. Now, if it turns out... And, and I'll give you the, 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 my, my uh, argument here, the rest of my argument in a minute. If it turns out that we are really tying into some objective moral truths with some of these words that we use, then, then relativism is false. If it turns out that relativism is true, these words that we are using don't refer to anything meaningful, morally speaking, and we should just get rid of them or at least acknowledge that these are meaningful, meaningless things. Before I get to the examples, one last thing. I do not bear, when dealing with intuitions, I don't bear any burden of proof here. All I can do is point to, to these things and help you to see them, just like I did with the syllogism about Socrates. So in other words, if I were to say that rape is an objective moral harm 
and somebody said, it's not clear to me that rape is an objective moral harm. I'm not going to try to prove it to them. I'm not going to be, be swayed from my conviction on this thing, and I'm not going to say, gee, that's an interesting alternate morality. I'm going to say, get help. <laughs> Something is wrong if you can't see that. Okay, let me give you some of the flaws. In the book, we have seven or eight of them. I'm just going to give two or three of them and then close up and we'll have our Q&A. Flaw number one, if relativism is true, you could never, ever accuse anyone of doing something wrong if what you meant by that phrase is that the action itself was wrong. You couldn't accuse anybody of doing something wrong. That would be like saying you broke the rules in a game that has no rules. Can you imagine going out in the quad or the wherever? You got a quad around here? What is it called? Sproul Plaza. Okay, so you're going to play Frisbee golf or something. or Actually, you've got a Frisbee or a football, and, and then you say, let's go out and toss the football around or the Frisbee. Well, are we going to play the game? No, there's no rules in this game. We're just tossing it around. So you get out and start tossing it around, and all of, somebody says, all of a sudden somebody says, hey, you're out of bounds. My ball. What? Out of, out of bounds? <laughs> there's no rules in this game. You know, foul ball. What? Foul ball. You, know, you can't have a violation of the rules in a game when there are no rules. And what this means then with regards to morality, if there are no objective moral rules, then you could never claim that someone has ever done anything wrong in the objective sense, that the action was wrong. Oh, you could talk about your feelings. You could talk about your culture or your language, but you never can talk about the action as wrong. Relativism thus becomes the ultimate pro-choice position. It legitimizes every personal choice, even the choice to be a racist or a gay basher or block an abortion clinic or kill abortionists. What's wrong with that if you're a relativist? I lived in Thailand for seven months. I worked in a refugee camp in 1982, and we were helping Cambodian refugees who had survived the Cambodian Holocaust from 1975 to 1979. I talked with people that told me gruesome things of the communist revolution there in Cambodia, the Khmer Rouge, the red Cambodians, the communist Cambodians, and what they did to the people and to the children. In fact, it was not only the adults would tell me this, but I saw pictures that children would draw of the events that they experienced, like, taking, like Khmer Rouge taking babies and throwing them up in the air and catching them in the end of a bayonet and then pitching the babies into a big vat of water. And when it filled up with baby corpses, they made the people drink the water. They called it the baby broth. What's that? In relativism, that isn't anything. That's just stuff. You can't call that wrong if relativism is true. Now, I suspect you guys reacted to that. I could hear the groan. Somebody the other night accused me of using extreme examples to get your emotions going. It's not to get your emotions going. It's to bring your moral intuitions to the surface so you can see clearly. If your emotions are going, what caused that? It's your direct awareness of the evil of that action. If we are sure that some things must be wrong, that some judgments against another's conduct are justified, then relativism must be false. By the way, in those four years, two million Cambodians died of torture, starvation, and execution, according to Time magazine. Flaw number two. If I were, as a Christian, trying to convince you to believe in Christianity, 
and you were aware of what happened to those children in Thailand, what might be an objection that you would raise to my view about God? How could your God allow all this, what's the word? Evil suffering in the world. If he's a good God, how could he allow all this evil in the world? It's one of the most um, persistent objections against theism. But do you realize what must be necessary for the objection even to be raised? I'm not going to answer the objection now. I'm asking the question is, what, what does it tell us that we feel the impulse to, to raise the objection? What must be necessary to raise the objection? There has to be evil in the world. But guess what? If relativism is true, there is no evil in the world. There are no right and wrong things. They're just personal preferences. Some people like it, some people don't. You may not like it. You know, uh, four years ago in the spring, two members of the trench coat mafia went into Columbine High School, spraying bullets left to right, tossing pipe bombs. When the dust settled and the smoke cleared, 14 kids were dead. The shooters had taken their own lives, and the uh, teacher was dead as well. Six days later, I had a debate about Christianity and atheism. What do you think came up? This one. Of course, the LA Times had a headline, Where Was God? at Columbine High School. Well, I understand that objection, but those, those kinds of things convince me more that God exists, not less. Why? Because I told those people that if, if uh, there were no God, if morals were just relative, if it was just an individual preference, there are a lot of things you could say about what happened at Columbine High School or in Thailand. You could say, oh, I, I couldn't sleep for a week. I cried when I saw those kids running out of that school, and I did. I was in the gym laying on the floor doing sit-ups, and there it was. You could say, I wouldn't let my kids out of the house. You would say, I, I don't understand how anybody could do that. I would never do, th do a thing like that. You could say all of these things that represented personal autobiography. But one thing you could never say, if morals are relative, about what happened at Columbine High School, is you could never say those acts were wicked. But that's the one thing you must say. In fact, it's the one thing everybody said. The reason that people raise this objection to the existence of God is because they think there is real evil in the world. They can see it. They experience it. But that could only happen if relativism is false. Let me just offer you one more thing here. I had more I could say, but we're short on time, and I want to have an opportunity to talk with you. Relativists can't promote the obligation of justice or fairness or, watch this, tolerance. If you're a relativist, or if relativism is true, then there is no moral obligation to treat equals equally, to be fair, to punish the guilty, to let the innocent go free. There is no obligation that we have to treat other human beings with respect. In fact, there are no moral obligations whatsoever. The odd thing is, is people think that relativism promotes tolerance when relativism makes tolerance impossible. Why ought I tolerate people who disagree with me? Why ought I treat them res with respect? You relativists have just told me there are no objective oughts. It's up to me. Fine. Then I choose not to be tolerant, and you have no grounds for complaint. It seems to me 
if we ought to respect those who differ with us, if we ought to be just, if we ought to be fair, if these are genuine moral obligations, then relativism is false. Now, what I want you to see is the price that it costs you to deny morality. I think you know better. If there is no objective morality, you can't raise complaints about the babies and Cambodian babies under the Khmer Rouge or about Matthew Shepard, who was murdered by, by gay bashers up in Wyoming or Montana or the, whatever that cowboy state was. What is that? Anybody know? I always say the wrong one, and then the other cowboys get mad at me because it wasn't their state, you know. <laughs> but you could never say that thing was wrong. That's the price it will be if relativism is true. And I have to ask this question, who could live this way? Who can really live this way? Who can believe this? You know what? Nobody does. Nobody does. Wait, I thought you said that relativism is a prevailing view in the culture. They can talk this way. They can't live this way. Nobody is really a relativist. They can stand in line with you in the bank, and they are talking with you about morality, and they're saying nobody should push their views on anybody on morality, and then somebody cuts in front of them in line. And what do they do? Excuse me just a minute. Hey, you, Buster, in the back of the line, you shouldn't do that. Right? And then he doesn't say, and by the way, that's just my own personal moral point of view. It has nothing to do with you. <laughs> just ignore me. <laughs> no, they really thought they were doing something wrong. I was talking to a young man at the same chiropractor's office. His name was Gil. And... Uh, he was a nice guy and tolerant type, and he was asking me about my own beliefs about stuff, and we had conversation, and, uh, you know, I, we talked about Christianity, and that was fine with him, until when we got on some moral issues, we got on the issue of homosexuality and heard, heard my view, which was that I think that homosexuals are human beings made in the image of God and should be respected and, as just like any other human being, but the conduct is immoral. Well, he got all upset. He said, you Christians, you're nice people until you start getting judgmental. <laughs> see, now you're starting to see something, aren't you? Well, I saw it too, and so I thought I'd just let him go a little bit further. I said, Gil, what's, what's wrong with that? Kitty, 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 kitty. You know, one of these. <laughs> he said, it's wrong to judge. And I said, well, Gil, if it's wrong to judge, then why are you judging me right now? Oh. <laughs> All right. Uh, and so he's regrouping. And I can hear him mumbling to himself. And he, no, no, no. <laughs> Uh, no, that's not going to work. All right, he said, I was judging. I guess, um, gee, I guess, uh, I guess I was judging. Um, I guess it's okay to judge. <laughs> but, but, he said, you can't push your morality on other people. Once you push your morality on other people, then you cross the line. Now, he thought he'd, you know, bettered his lot, right? He didn't realize he went out of the frying pan right into the fire. Because I had another question for him. I said, Gil, is that your morality? That, you know, that you shouldn't push your morality on other people? Is that your moral point of view? Yeah, it is. I mean, the guy didn't see it coming. <laughs> God bless him. You know, it's like, then why are you pushing your morality on me right now? Oh, yeah. So <laughs> see what I'm talking about? They can't get away from it. And finally, he says, it's not fair. I said, what's the matter? He said, I can't find a way to say it in which it sounds right. He thought I was playing a word trick on him. I said, Gil, it's not a word trick. It doesn't sound right because it's not right. It's contradictory. You're doing the same thing you're telling me not to do. There is no neutrality. Sometimes I get in a conversation like this and people get frustrated and they say, well, now you got me all confused. <laughs> I said, no, you were confused when you started. Um, 
<laughs> so, listen. Let me pull this to let me pull this to a close here. Um, we're faced with two only two possibilities: either moral rules exist or they don't. Object, objectivism with regards to moral rules or relativism. If relativism is false, and I think it's pretty clear that it is, then some form of moral objectivism has to be true. There are moral rules out there. Now, I think this has explanatory power. That is, I think this helps us to understand something. Because there is something I know about every single person in this room that you don't know that I know about you. You know it about yourself, but you try to keep it from people around you. You're trying to hide this. What is that? You have a bad self-image. Well, how do I know that? Because everybody does. It is the universal human condition. You see, we look down inside of ourselves at our, at our most uh, honest moments, and we see something inside ourselves that we do not like. And the thing that we see that's twisted and broken is moral. Something evil down there lurks. And we try not to show this to other people. We don't want them to see this. We try to deny it in ourselves, but we can't get away from it. We know it. Something's wrong. And that has a feeling. And the feeling has a name. What do you think the name of the feeling is about our own moral brokenness? Guilt. We all feel guilty. This is universal. The only one that doesn't feel guilty is a sociopath. Why do we feel guilty? Well, if our analysis that we've just gone through here is correct, this suggests a reason that we all feel guilty. We all feel Why do we feel guilty? Some people say, well, it's, you know, your culture. You know, you got Jewish guilt, and you got Catholic guilt, and you got Protestant guilt, and you got, you know, Polish guilt. I don't know. Everybody's got guilt. You got Asian guilt, right? <laughs> that works here. <laughs> so... So it's culture. Well, I've got an alternate explanation. I'm just wondering now, maybe, just tossing it out, maybe we feel guilty because we are guilty. Is that a possibility? Is that in the running? And the way to deal with guilt, ladies and gentlemen, is not denial. That's relativism. The way to deal with guilt is through forgiveness. And this is where Jesus comes in. Now, I have a lot more to say about this point tomorrow night, so I'm not going to take time to talk about it this evening. But I just want to suggest in closing that at this point, I think Christianity speaks very truthfully. What it teaches resonates with our deepest intuitions about the world. One, the universe is a moral universe with moral laws that apply to human beings. Two, each of us has violated those laws many times and is guilty of moral crimes against our sovereign. In other words, the Christian me message makes sense out of the world. It is a dual message of justice and love. Justice that those who commit moral crimes ought to be punished that you already know. That's the bad news. And love that amnesty and mercy are offered to anyone who abandons the rebellion and seeks forgiveness. And that's 
the good news. And it's news I think is worth thinking about. Thank you. Good evening. Um, once again, uh, it's my privilege to introduce uh, <laughs> Greg tonight. Um, and I think uh, for those of you who are here, who are here last night, um, I don't think I need to add any more um, in terms of uh, his background. But I do want to, for the sake of those people who are joining us for the first time tonight, I just want to um, let you know that he is here. He is uh, as the founder and president of Stand to Reason. Um, he is also the host of a weekly uh, live radio show in the L.A. area. Uh, he's also an award-winning uh, author, and he has actually uh, given many talks throughout man many campuses, both in the U.S. and abroad. So we're really excited to have his presence here, especially on the campus of UC Berkeley. So uh, let's welcome Greg Kokel with a warm round of applause. Thank you. Thank you. This is, uh, this is kind of like deja vu all over again, you know. Um, I've had a great couple of days here. In fact, um, actually, today's Saturday, right? So it's only been one day. I've had a great two days here this one day, you know. It's like I've, uh, it's, it's been a whirlwind for me. I've met so many different people and... Um, uh, and some I've met before, and some I'll see again tomorrow, and many of you I've already shaken hands with. And um, I have a hard time keeping track of the individuals, so I just want you to know in advance, if I talk to you tomorrow or I'll be back in four weeks at another church in the area, you can check our website at scr.org if you <laughs> want to uh, find out where that's going to be. But um, uh, I sometimes uh, have a hard time keeping track of people. In fact, people ask me since I answer questions or attempt to answer questions on a regular basis of a philosophic and religious nature, people ask me, what's the hardest question that anyone's ever asked you? And my response is, the hardest question, and this is really true, the, the question that I dread the most is when pe somebody comes up to me and says, do you remember me? <laughs> Surprisingly, I sometimes get that on the radio. You know, somebody will call me on the radio and said, Hi, do you remember me? And I say, Well, you, you look familiar. Uh, <laughs> many of you here uh, this evening have been followers of Jesus Christ for a long time. Uh, some of you are new followers of Jesus Christ, and uh, there are, I'm sure, a, quite a number of you that are not followers of Jesus Christ at all. No matter which group that you represent here this evening, though, I think that each of you is troubled, in some sense, by something that you've heard. And the thing that troubles you is this statement, Jesus is the only way of salvation. Other routes just won't get you there. All paths don't lead to the top of the mountain. All roads don't lead to Rome. There is a truth about religion, and Jesus is it, and other religions are false. Now, this is something that's hard for 21st century Americans to stomach. And to be honest with you, even if you're a follower of Christ, I suspect that you are uneasy about this. Let me let you in on a secret. I don't like it either. 
Frankly, if it were up to me and it were my heaven, I'd say, listen, if you're basically a nice person, you say, have a nice day, how are you doing, you smile, and you're basically a good guy, come on down, you can be in my heaven. The problem is, of course, it's not my heaven. And the idea that there is a qualification to get into heaven, and that qualification has something to do with Jesus of Nazareth, isn't my idea either. And so when people begin to get frustrated at me uh, because I make this statement, I say, listen, I'm with you. I don't like this idea at all, but I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And insofar as I am a follower of Jesus Christ, I can't tell you what I think is best, what I'd like, what it would be like if I were in charge. I have to tell you what Jesus said. And this idea that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven is something that he made abundantly clear in his ministry. Uh, Not only did he make it clear, but his disciples made it clear. In other words, those people who Jesus taught to carry on his message after him had the same message. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Sometimes the people will say to me, well, you, you, you don't understand that. That's just your interpretation. I say, okay, how about what his disciples said just a couple of weeks after he ascended into heaven? Standing before the Jewish Sanhedrin, his disciples said, there is salvation in none other. For there was no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, I don't know how you could make it more clear. But people will say, well, that's just your interpretation, whatever. And so we put together a little booklet, this little red booklet here. It says, Jesus, the only way. Maybe I got one verse wrong or two verses wrong or four or five verses wrong, but I didn't get a hundred verses wrong. This little booklet has a hundred verses from the New Testament that demonstrates that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. Nine lines of argument the authors give in the New Testament. And it's for the reading challenge. Look at that. (laughs) Real easy. We've actually got some back there at the table. Two bucks. Make no mistake about it. This is what Jesus taught. He was not a pluralist. This is what those people who Jesus trained to take his message after him taught. They were not pluralists. But of course, Um, you might say just because the Bible says it doesn't mean it's right. And I think that's a fair challenge. I could understand that coming from someone who's not a follower of Christ and is uncertain of the authority of the Bible. Fine. Um, I'd like to then discuss this issue with you just a little bit tonight. But let me suggest some ground rules. Since this is such such a controversial issue, I think uh, it's fair to talk about a couple of common responses that are not helpful in the least in trying to adjudicate this issue. These are responses that pass as legitimate challenges in some circles, but they are not going to get us very far. Now, what are those responses? Well, I gave some examples of one of those responses earlier, or I should say last evening. Um, But it's a a good example, I think, and it's worth repeating for those people who maybe didn't catch it yesterday. What if you had a friend who went to a doctor, and the doctor, after examining your friend, determined that your friend had cancer, and it was terminal, and it was, and it was a, well, it was looking bad, and he needed treatment. What would you think of your friend if your friend heard what the doctor said and then said to the doctor, you're mean? Why? Because you gave this thing, this assessment that he didn't like. 
if you had a friend who responded to your doctor that way and then wouldn't go back to the doctor because he thought the doctor was mean for saying this, you would think your friend was pretty foolish, right? Because so much is at stake. But let me change the illustration just a little bit. What if somebody said, uh, what would you think if, if a person said, who is a Christian, said that Jesus Christ is the only way? In other words, gives an assessment of someone's spiritual condition and, ex and, and offers what that person believes to be the appropriate antidote. And then somebody responded to that person, well, you're just mean, you're arrogant, you're intolerant, you're narrow-minded, or something like that. Well, this isn't going to help. It, that is just as foolish to call the Christian a name for offering his assessment as it is for calling the doctor a name for offering his assessment. This is not a question about anybody's character. This is not a question about their personality. This is a question about whether their assessment is accurate or not. And that stands whether you like what the person says or not. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that the Christian assessment is true. What it means is it doesn't help you to simply dismiss it because you don't like what you hear. And uh, frankly, I think the illustration is apt because Christians uh, uh, believe that human beings are dying of a spiritual disease. And that disease is sin. And that there is an antidote to that disease. And there's only one antidote to that disease. And there's a reason there is only one antidote to that disease. I'll get to that towards the end. That radical surgery must be performed by only one surgeon, and that is Jesus Christ. This isn't because we're mean when we say this. It's because we're concerned. Now, we might be mistaken, but we are not motivated. We are not animated by malice. We are animated by concern. Now, there's a, um, a, another response that isn't very helpful, and I mentioned this at length yesterday, so I won't spend much time on it, and that's the claim that when a Christian thinks that his view is the only right view, then that means he's arrogant. Now, friends, if I, as a Christian, am comporting myself in an arrogant manner, if I am being arrogant in the way I'm acting, well, shame on me. I should change that. But the objection isn't that I'm acting arrogantly. The objection is that I'm arrogant because I think I'm right. And as we talked about last evening, everybody in the game thinks they're right. So it doesn't seem to be fair or helpful to single out the Christian and call him names because he thinks he's right without realizing that everybody has their own opinions that they think are correct. There's another alternative or another response that, that also isn't helpful here. And what I'm trying to do now is just clear away some of the roadblocks that keep us from thinking clearly about this critically important issue. One of those was expressed, I think, by, uh, very clearly and, and uh, powerfully by columnist Thomas Friedman, um, who wrote in the New York Times soon after the tragedy of 9-11. And he wrote an article dealing with what he called religious totalitarianism. Thomas Friedman's point of view was that the real danger to this country is not terrorism per se, but rather what he thought motivated the terrorism, that is, religious zealots who thought they were right. And it became very clear in Thomas Friedman's piece, he was not just talking about these Muslim terrorists. He was talking about anyone who thought their religious view was correct. 
These are the true dangerous people in our country. And Thomas Friedman says we must stop this religious totalitarianism. We must must use every means within our power to silence that kind of thing. Silence what kind of thing? The point of view that many people in this room actually hold. That their convictions about religious truth are actually true. Thomas Friedman thinks you're dangerous. You must be silenced. Isn't it interesting that just believing that your view is correct is considered a totalitarian act, and Mr. Friedman's response on how to deal with that is to silence you. In other words, he wants to stop what he considers religious totalitarianism by imposing a secular totalitarianism. Now, I don't know if he'd actually go to that extreme, but this was certainly the tone of his letter. But, of course, the problem is Thomas Friedman has his own views about religious truth. Maybe he's a pluralist. Maybe he believes that all religions lead to God, and any religion is as good as the next. That is a religious conviction that he thinks is what? True. In other words, by Thomas Friedman's own definition, he's a religious totalitarian. This isn't going to work. One other thing that I want to dispatch here before we really get into the meat of the material is a different response. And I I have a niece that lives on the East Coast. Her name is Kirsten. And um, she is consistently being assailed by uh, many of her friends around her because she is a Christian and they are not. And uh, she emails me and uh, she says, hey, Uncle Greg. And then she, uh, she tells me this experience she has. Then I write her back a response. We've done this so much. I'm thinking about taking all of these responses and putting it into a book and entitling it, hey, Uncle Greg, you know. <laughs> so I've got all this hard work and I can, you know, publish it or whatever. But one of the challenges that she was offered was the, the challenge that if you believe that your way is right, that's narrow-minded. Now, she said, how do I respond to that? I said, well, to believe that your view is correct is narrow. Any claim to truth is narrow. That is the nature of truth. If you think that one thing is true, then anything that is not consistent with that belief is going to be false. All claims to truth are narrow. Narrow-mindedness is something entirely different. Narrow-mindedness doesn't speak to what you believe, but to the way that you hold your views. A narrow-minded person is a person that won't consider alternate views, who thinks his view is the only way and will not take into consideration uh, opposing points of view. A narrow-minded person is prejudiced with regards to other views. The irony is, is the person she was talking with had no interest in considering her view whatsoever. It was too narrow. Of course, he had his own views that he thought were true, and therefore everything else was what? False, and therefore his own view was what? Narrow. You can't get away from that. But not only was his view narrow like hers was, he was also narrow-minded. To hold a narrow view is not a problem. To be narrow-minded in the way you hold your view, that is, prejudiced against other views, you don't even consider them, you won't even look at the evidence, that's the problem. And that certainly isn't the case with somebody who simply says that Jesus Christ is the solution to man's spiritual ills. There are Christians that are narrow-minded. 
And there are plenty of non-Christians that are narrow-minded. But you can't know whether they're narrow-minded or not just by looking at their narrow point of view. This isn't going to work. So, being, calling somebody intolerant or arrogant or narrow or dangerous is not helpful in this conversation. This gets in the way of, of, um, of productive pursuit of the truth. Uh, there's another thing that's not going to help. And that's when somebody says, well, that's just your truth. That's true for you. You know, my response to that is I'm not exactly sure what that means. When somebody says, that's just your truth, I have a simple question. What do you mean by that? And you know what the response is usually? Well, that you believe it. I say, well, I do believe it, but why do you call that a truth? Because that's your truth. You believe it. So to say something is true simply means that you believe it. You have your truth, your beliefs. You have your truth, your beliefs. They have their truths, and everybody's got different truths. Upon which I have a question to ask. Can believing something make it true? Now think about that for a moment. Can merely believing something make it true? If that's true, then there is no difference between fantasy and reality. Do you see that? There's no difference between belief and make-believe. It's all the same. But if believing something can't make it true, then believing something isn't a truth. You can't be dismissed that way. When I talk about Christianity being true, I'm not just saying that I believe it. I, I'm saying that it's actually so, that the picture of the world that Jesus himself gave is an accurate picture of the world. Now, I, I could be mistaken on that. But it is the kind of thing that can be mistaken. My claims are either true or false. And it isn't going to do to dismiss them by simply saying, that's your truth. Finally, one way to dismiss, another way that people often dismiss the Christian in this discussion is with the simple statement, well, who's to say? Who's to say? Who's to say? Nobody knows. Who's to say? There's a very simple answer to that. The person with the best reasons gets to say. This has always been the case. If you have good reasons for something, then you are justified in believing it's true. And if you disagree with me on that point, if you say, no, that's not the case that the people with the best reasons get to say, I'm going to ask you, why do you disagree with me on that point? And guess what you're going to have to do? <laughs> you're going to have to give me reasons why you think it isn't reasons that make the difference. And so it's kind of a self-refuting enterprise. Right answers depend on right reasons. And so if we want to find out what's true, we have to give our best thinking to it. So I want to consider this evening the question of religious pluralism, that is, that all religions are equally valid, and whether or not that particular claim is true. If it's not true that all religions are not equally valid, then it might be the case that one religion is true and others turn out to be false. I take this view as a reason, uh, this task rather, as a reasonable one, and I don't think anybody should be faulted for trying to figure out the answer to that. And I'm suggesting that three responses to that are not helpful. To say that somebody's intolerant or arrogant or narrow or uh, dangerous because they have come to a conclusion about that. To say that this is just your truth. Or to say just dismissively, who's to say? And whether you're a Christian or not, don't let these kinds of foolish statements get in the way of trying to figure out what is really the answer when it comes to religious questions. But can we know anything about this? 
A lot of people don't think we can know anything. It's just a guess. I think we can. And I'm going to argue a general point and then a specific point. I'm going to argue first that religious pluralism is false. That it cannot be true that all views are equally valid when it comes to God. It may be that none are valid, but they certainly can't all be valid. The second thing I want to argue something specific is that Christianity is the religion that most accurately describes the world as it really is. That upon deliberation, I have concluded that there is one and only one antidote to man's problem, and that's Jesus Christ. And I'd like you to consider some of the reasons so that you might conclude the same. So I have an agenda here today. I want to persuade you of something. I'm not saying this, by the way, because I'm mean or because I'm arrogant or because I'm intolerant or narrow-minded or dangerous. I'm saying it because I'm convinced that this is true. As I mentioned, I could be mistaken about this, but it is not animated by malice. It's an attempt to figure out what is actually true about the nature of the world and then pass that on. So let me tell you first why I think pluralism is false, and then I'll suggest two ways to help you know what the truth is, the two, way, two of the ways that I think are good evidences for the truth of Christianity and that Jesus is the only way. About four months ago now, I was in Toronto, and I got flown out there on behalf of a TV show called Test of Faith. This is a national cable TV broadcast that I guess is quite popular in, popular in Canada. And uh, the, the setup is this. They have a semicircle table. Um, it's kind of like a donut cut in half. And so you have the semicircle out there, and then you have a small circle in the middle. And uh, four people sit on the outside, and one person sits in the middle, and they discuss a controversial topic. And the person that, a religious topic, Test of Faith is the, is the program. And the person that holds the controversial view sits in the small space called the hot seat. Now, who do you think was sitting in the hot seat? <laughs> Mr. Kokel was sitting in the hot seat. And so why was, what, what was the controversial issue that Mr. Kokel held to, to be true? And, and my view was that religious pluralism was false. In other words, it wasn't true that all roads lead to God. And on the panel were, in addition to the talk show host, a Sikh who is a religious, a member of a religious order from India. Sikhs wear turbans. The gentlemen wear the turbans. Um, there was also a Hindu pastor, and then there was also, I, I think it's fair to call this woman a liberal Christian who is representing the more liberal side of Christianity and, uh, as opposed to my more conservative view. And, and so basically we had an hour together, and after I made my case with the talk show host, she would bring on one person after another, and it was all gang up on Kokel for an hour in front of a national audience, <laughs> which was okay because I thought I had a fairly strong case. And in the first segment, I made my argument. Now, I want you to consider this argument because it strikes me as a very straightforward and reasonable argument. I told the, um, I told the, the woman who was the talk show host there, Valerie Pringle, I said, Valerie, though I am a Christian, and this was part of the introduction, I am not going to argue today as a Christian. One way I could argue against religious pluralism is to argue for Christianity, that Christianity is the true religion, and if I prevailed, of course, then pluralism would be refuted in the process. But I'm not going to take that angle. I have a different way of arguing today. Um, the way I, uh, I'm going to argue is um, 
I, I, basically, I would argue this way, even if I were a, an atheist. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. Either he was the Messiah or he isn't the Messiah. If he is the Messiah, the Christians are right and the Jews are wrong. If he's not the Messiah, the Jews are right and the Christians are wrong. But under no circumstance can they both be right. God is either personal or he's not personal. If he's personal, Jews and Christians and, and Muslims are right on that point at least, and the Hindus are wrong. Or uh, if he's not personal, the Hindus are right and the others are wrong, but under no circumstances can they both be correct. When you die, you go to heaven or hell or get reincarnated or go to astral worlds or go to the grave, but you're not going to do them all. <laughs> Do you see the conflict at the foundation of the religious enterprise? Different religions have different pictures of the world. These pictures are incommensurable. They can't be collapsed back into each other and all be basically the same. They contradict each other. Now, one of the questions that was asked, and it's brought up frequently, well, well maybe it's the similarities that matter. This was brought up to me by a student at University of California at Irvine, and I was in a, a gallery somewhat like this. And uh, so I went back to the board, and I drew two small circles on the board the size of a tablet, pill. And I said, Do these, are these circles basically the same? And she said, yes, they are. And then I drew a line from one, and I wrote aspirin. And I drew a line from the other, and I wrote arsenic. I said, now do you think they're basically the same? She said, no, they're not. You're right. It's the differences that matter. <laughs> just because they both come in tablet form doesn't mean they're basically the same. And just because a lot of uh, religions say you should love your neighbor doesn't mean they're basically the same. They are radically different. And in fact, faithful adherents to virtually every one of these religions all know that. And that's why... Those who hold to these religious views, almost without exception, unless they've been confused by American political correctness, hold that their religious view is correct. This is one thing I, is so refreshing about Muslims. They think we're wrong. I like that. They're not running around saying, well, we got our beliefs, but everybody's just as true as us. No, they think they're right. Now, that, 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 and, and that we're mistaken. And so, you know, that has, unfortunately, some dangerous ramifications depending on how they act about that conviction. But they understand that they can't all be correct. And that's my foundational argument. And so I offered this to the panel. The panel, most of them were sitting on the outside listening in, and they began to be introduced. Now, I think this is a fair argument. If you are a religious pluralist, you're going to have to deal with that. How can they all be equally the same when they contradict each other? Now, I offered the audience at that, in that TV show two ways out of this. As far as I can tell, there's only two ways to get out of this. For one, you could say that even though they have contradictory viewpoints, it doesn't matter. All religions could be true in this sense, that none of them are true. All of them are fantasies. They're all just, you know, uh, placebos. They just, you know, like Marx said, religion is the opiate of the people. It's what you do to make yourself feel to get better. It's not anything real at all. It's just a trick you're playing on yourself. And in that regard, choose your fantasy. Any trick is good as good as the next, as long as it does the job for you. 
find your flavor, choose your fantasy, that's fine. Well, you could say in that sense, all religions are equally true in that any religion that does the trick for you is going to uh, make you feel better. That's all that's necessary. Now, I didn't suspect that the other panelists would take that view because they were people with religious convictions. There's only one other way out of this, and that is by saying this. You know what? You're right. These Religions conflict, and so taken at face value, these religious beliefs can't be true. But it turns out that God doesn't really care that much about the details, that God is more concerned with something else. He's more concerned with sincerity. He's more concerned with goodness. He's more concerned with people pursuing him. And as long as you pursue him in, in whatever way it happens to be, even though your understanding of God is not accurate, maybe you've got some of the details wrong, maybe you got it wrong about Jesus or whatever or on either side of the scale, that doesn't matter to God. God just wants people who are sincere. Now, can you see how that would be an end run around the problem? Of course, they're different, but that doesn't really matter that much. But here's the problem with that alternative. This is a rather dramatic statement about knowing what God wants. In principle, this might save the day, but then I'm going to have to ask you this question if you offer that alternative to me. How do you know what God wants? How is it you have this inside knowledge? Did God tell you? Is there some authoritative text you can turn to that characterizes God in this way that he doesn't care about the details? How do you know that's the case? This is a strong claim of religious knowledge that can't be just stated and thrown out there, as, and that's the end of it. It needs to be defended. One needs to give reasons for it. So I offered those two things as the end of rounds, and I'm ready for my opposition. And uh, the first person up was a Sikh. Now, I have to tell you something about a prediction I made before the show started, though, because I got there early, as all the participants do, and I got in conversation with some of the people, the technical people behind the scene. I'm making friends and trying to be a good ambassador as a Christian and chatting with people, and I said, let me tell you how this is going to come down. I'm just going to make a prediction. We'll see if I'm right. I'm going to go out there, and I'm going to make an argument about why I think religious pluralism is false. And I gave you that argument just now. But nobody's going to pay any attention to my argument. All of these intelligent people are going to bypass my argument and they're just going to attack me because I'm a Christian. They are going to call me arrogant and intolerant. That was my prediction. So here comes the Sikh. The Sikh was an attorney. And a media person, and uh, we had had a small conversation behind the scenes, and it was a pleasant conversation. But now, you know, now we're in the arena, right? <laughs> so uh, he lays into me with a passion, a little passive-aggressively. He's smiling, but he's l looking for blood. And what was his big complaint? Did he address my argument? He ignored my argument. He went after me because people like me cause wars. People like me are intolerant. Oh, you think you have the corner and all the truth. Oh, good for you. You think you run the, won the lottery. I'm happy for you. You won the lottery. Good for you. But you're dangerous. You have no logic in your view. He said that he had a piece of paper or something he got from the Internet that everybody said, there's no logic in this. He's, you know nothing about logic. And I said, well, let's see. Law of non-contradiction, law of excluded middle, law of identity, inductive reasoning, deductive reasoning, transductive reasoning, and for instance, and I, I think I know a few things. <laughs> Furthermore, I gave you an argument which you have ignored. 
Next person up is the Hindu. He merely stated that all, in his tradition, all roads lead to the top of the mountain. Some roads go up this way, and this is what he said. This, I'm not making this up either. He said, some roads go up this side, some roads go up this side, some roads go side and side, and some don't get there at all. (laughs) I thought, that's my point. (laughs) So his illustration wasn't helpful, um, primarily because, and I did point this out, it's just an illustration. An illustration is not an argument. You can say all roads lead to Rome or all roads lead to the top of the mountain. This doesn't give you any reason to believe that it, they actually do. He just simply stated that. The Christian woman, the liberal Christian woman from the United Church of Canada, then got on board, and she um, said a couple of things that I thought were interesting. Among what she said is, you know what I think is arrogant, is when anybody thinks they know the mind of God. She's got a little lecturing kind of, mm-hmm. And her eyes are darting over to me, you know, like, we know who's guilty of this, right? Me. I think I know the mind of God. Then she goes on to explain, no, she doesn't think that uh, all roads lead to Rome. That's not quite the way all paths lead to God. That's not the, quite the right way to characterize it. She thinks that God made many paths to himself. Now, I guess she saw that as a clever variation. But that aside, I mean, I didn't see what it added, to be quite honest with you. But that aside, do you remember what she had said just a moment ago? She thought it was arrogant if anybody thought they knew the mind of God. (laughs) And by the way, God has made many paths to himself. Isn't that kind of a characterization of thinking you know the mind of God? So her view turns out to be self-refuting, too. For one hour, that's the way it went. For one hour, nobody addressed my argument. For one hour, I was attacked as arrogant, narrow-minded, and intolerant. And during that time, I said, listen, it's kind of curious how this happened. We started out talking about a topic like religious pluralism, and now we're talking about Mr. Kokel's character. How did we get switched over on this? I want to talk about the issue at hand here. Maybe I'm wrong. Yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I think Jesus is the only way, but I could be wrong. And they seem to think that I was, which is an interesting situation. Because if I'm wrong, then Christianity is false. Therefore, it is not true that all religions lead to God. In other words, if I'm wrong... I'm right. (laughs) They never got it. The people in the audience got it. The atheist behind the camera got it. He came out to me after the show and he said, what the heck is wrong with that guy? (laughs) Using language appropriate for atheists, too. They got it. No one addressed my argument. It's a very simple argument. And just denying it, ignoring it, and getting mad at me isn't going to work. This is a serious problem for religious pluralism. It cannot be the case that all religions are equally true. 
There's got to be a whole lot of people that believe false things, which, by the way, is exactly what Jesus predicted. He said that the way to salvation in eternal life is narrow, and few are they, they who find it. But the way to destruction is broad, and many are they who find it. Not because that's the way God wants it necessarily. It's because people are very happy to go out into all different directions. Friends, these can't all be correct. So we ought to, just on, on, on reasonable grounds alone, dismiss this idea of religious pluralism. Now that puts us in a position of asking our second question. If all religions aren't correct, how do we know which one is the true religion? How do we know which ones are false? Well, I don't think this is as an intractable problem as some people think it is, because we are subconsciously testing things true or false every single day. And I think we can harness some of the tools that we are already using on a regular basis to judge whether things are true or false and use them and then use them um, uh, to help us answer some of these questions about religion. And I'm just going to give you two of them. There's more, but two I think will suffice for this evening to kind of get you thinking about this. First, one way that we discover the difference between true things and false things is simply by reflection. Some things, it seems, just can't be so. If I were to say to you, by the way, that down in my car rental, down in the street, I have in the glove box a square circle. How many, how many would pay a buck to see my square circle? Thank you. All of you raised your hand. I have some seashore to sell you in Montana. I hope you realize there cannot be a square circle in my glove box in the car because they don't exist. You know they don't exist because they entail contradictory concepts. A circle has one side, a square has four sides. It can't have one side and not one side at the same time. It's a contradiction. There are no such things as square circles. We could reject this not because we've looked around in the world and discovered empirically they don't exist, but because the notion itself is contradictory. Guy says, I met a woman who is 10 years younger than her son. Would you believe him? No, you shouldn't, because no empirical search is necessary to reject the claim. Even if the most brilliant person alive said this, you could immediately reject it. Now, there's some other examples of this kind of thing. For example, one person said, if you want to know whether you're home or not, just go outside and look in the window. <laughs> all right, we didn't all like that one. How about this one? One mother wrote to her son at college, your sister had a baby this morning. I haven't heard if it's a boy or a girl, so I don't know whether you're an aunt or an uncle. Then she signs the letter. If you don't get this letter, let me know and I'll send you another one. <laughs> this must be the graduates up here and the undergraduates over here. This kind of a <laughs> delayed factor. Oh, I think the high school group is here, but at least they're smiling. That's good. <laughs> I think we should give a hand to the high schoolers here. 
One person once told me, Coco, you hit the nail right between the eyes. <laughs> that leaves a bad taste in the back of my mind. Mm, I don't know. <laughs> you ever have your mother tell you, don't look at me with that tone of voice? One, one politician once said, this is the greatest planet on earth. You know, <laughs> you, you see, there's something wrong with these statements. You know, they just don't fit together. There's a, a kind of an incoherence there, and this is what makes them funny. Unfortunately, some people believe odd things like that. Now, there are some things, by the way, that may seem odd to us, or inscrutable that aren't actually incoherent, that is contradictory. And I'll give you an example from my own tradition. Christianity teaches that God is triune, that there is one God and there are three persons. Many people will want to reject Christianity on this grounds. Why would they reject Christianity on the grounds of the Trinity? Here's the reason. Christianity can't be true because Christianity believes in the Trinity and the Trinity is contradictory. Do you see how... People who reject Christianity for this reason are employing this tool that I'm talking about. They understand that certain claims about religion can't be true if they entail contradiction. Now, in this case, I think they're mistaken. They're right if there was a contradiction in Christianity. It should be rejected. But there is no internal contradiction in the concept of the Trinity because the Trinity teaches that there is one God and three persons. One God and three persons. Now, if we taught there was one God and there were three gods, that would be a contradiction. If we taught there was one person and three persons, that would be a contradiction. But we're not teaching either of those things. Christianity holds that there is one God and three persons. This is not a contradiction. Is it weird? Yes. Very weird. But it's not contradictory. I don't know how to understand entirely what this notion entails. There are a lot of inscrutable aspects to God's character. It certainly is odd, but it's not incoherent. It's not contradictory. Incidentally, the objection to Christianity or other forms of theism based on the problem of evil is, a, is, a, is an attempt to employ this principle of trying to determine what's true. Because the argument against God based on evil goes something like this. If God were good, he'd be able to, he'd be, he, rather, if God were good, he'd want to deal with evil. If God were powerful, he'd be able to deal with evil. But evil exists, so either God isn't good or he's not powerful, in which case Christianity is falsified. Now, if that argument is sustained, then I think that's a good argument against Christianity because it would entail a contradiction and contradictory notions cannot be true. It, does, it isn't sustained, and I don't have time to talk about this issue. We have um, some tapes on this, and I, I made reference to some of the ideas a little bit last evening. But the point I'm making is that people have the impulse to raise these kinds of objections because they understand one of the ways to assess a religious claim is to use this test, the test of coherence. Now, let me give you an example of a religion I reject because I think that it violates this, this test. Uh, this is why I reject religious pluralism. Religious pluralism says that all religions are equally valid or equally true, but they have contradictory truth claims. Therefore, they can't all be equally true. It's a violation of coherence. That's why I reject pluralism. It's the argument I gave you a few moments ago. But it's also the reason that I reject Hinduism. Why? Because Hinduism holds that 
that the, essentially there is only one reality, and that reality is a unity. It is classical monism. There's only one thing that exists, and that thing that exists is God, and God is a, an impersonal force. Well, what does that make of you and I? That makes us part of God's illusion. The problem is, and by the way, the word for the illusion is Maya, M-A-Y-A. This is all Maya. We're all part of the illusion. Now, some people think this is dignifying. They think, yes, we're all God. And that's, that makes us feel great because on this view, we're all God. But on this view, we're all God only in the sense that we're part of God's dream. That's all we are is a dream. We're not real. Now, here's my question. How can I know that I am not real, but I am an illusion? Do you see the inherent contradiction in that concept? I have true knowledge about myself, and the true knowledge I possess about myself is that I am not a self. <laughs> I know that I don't exist. Or, to paraphrase Descartes, I think, therefore I ain't, you know. <laughs> you know that somebody told me that Descartes Rene Descartes, the French philosopher, went into a um, coffee house once and, and they, they, somebody offered him a cup of coffee. He said, would you like some coffee? He said, I think not, and he disappeared. <laughs> uh, it's a philosopher's joke, so I guess you have to be there. But do you see the, what seems to be the foundational incoherence about this view? So, you know... Some of you had dreams last night. Think about the characters that were in your dreams. Did those characters in your dreams know that they were in your dream, that they were dream characters? No, they didn't know anything. They weren't real. Put another way, does Charlie Brown know he's a cartoon character? <laughs> of course not. This is why I reject Hinduism out of hand because it requires me to affirm that I can know that I am really part of an illusion. This seems to me wildly counterintuitive. It seems to me that it's incoherent. Now, I was talking about this on the radio show one day, and I had a Hindu person call in and object. And here's what he said. He said, you're misrepresenting Hinduism. The illusion is real. It's a real part of the deception. Do you see how incoherent ideas produce incoherent people? I rest my case, you know, that's all I had to say. So the principle here is that true ideas are not internally contradictory. Lack of coherence immediately disqualifies a viewer belief. And if your view of God or religion or something entails some kind of contradiction, you're on, you're on very thin ice. Or, or you're on thin ground, I guess I could say that too. You know, you're hanging from a thin limb or something, some kind of incoherent illustration I could offer there. A lack of coherence, by the way, disqualifies the view. You want to let that go. I had a caller also said, you're so closed-minded, you won't meditate to see if Hinduism is true. And, and to me, that was like an adult saying, you're so closed-minded, you won't even come by my house to meet my 10-year-old mother. I don't have to go by your house to meet your 10-year-old mother. There are no such things. And so I'm not in the least bit... Um, attracted to Hinduism for that reason. I have no temptation nor feel any rational obligation to consider Hinduism. There's an example of employing that to eliminate some options as legitimate options for consideration for truth. Let me um, offer you another test that I think is the one we are most familiar with, but to some degree 
we are most uncomfortable with when, we, when it comes to religious kinds of questions. So I want to introduce this by asking you a couple of questions to show you how familiar this is to you. How many of you believe that the sun is at the center of our solar system? It's not a trick question. I can see like... Oh, the high schoolers are into it, though, man. They're, they know that, right? Okay. Well, I think it is, too. All right. How many uh, of you believe that water boils at 212 degrees at sea level? Uh, yeah. Go ahead. I can see you looking at What is this? You know, he's, it's not a trick question. Does it boil at 212? Yeah. Okay, good. I'm glad you do this. How many of you believe that electrons go around an atom? How can you know that electrons go around an atom and you don't know what water boils at? <laughs> What's up with that? Here's my question. I think you all know all of those things. How do you know those things? Anybody gone in the space shuttle to kind of look at where the sun is positioned with regards to the earth? How many of you have actually... Uh, taking your water down to sea level and boiled it and put a temperature thing in it. Obviously, not too many. <laughs> and, of course, I know none of you have seen an electron going around an atom. How is it that you know these things? I'll tell you how you know these things. You know these things because somebody told you. You know these things because an authority told you it was so. In other words, you know it based on authority. Do you realize that virtually everything you know that it is not your direct perception, you know based on somebody else's say-so? Everything that happened before you were born, everything, or before you can remember, everything that happened uh, so far away that you've never seen it before, everything that happens that's so small you can't see it with the naked eye, all of these things you think you know, which is a whole lot of things you're taught in the university here, you think you know this principally because somebody told you. And you may have reason to trust that this person is reliable, and that's why you believe it. And that goes to show that, the, uh, for one, that knowledge by authority is a very normal way of knowing something. Now, let me give you another illustration. What if I were to uh, ask you to do something for me? What if I were to say, describe my mother? You think you'd have a hard time doing that? What if I forced you to give a description? And I could do that, but for the sake of time, I won't. But if I asked Manny, I said, Manny, describe my mother. You know? Well, he, he doesn't know my mother, right? Okay. <laughs> so he, he might just come up with something else, all right? And so you could listen to Manny's description, or anybody else's for that matter. And then I say, okay, I'm going to now describe my mother. Which one would you believe, Manny or myself? <laughs> Me, right? Me, right? Okay. <laughs> what this shows us is that some people, it actually shows us two things. Some descriptions of my mother could be wrong. <laughs> Even though there's only one mom for Mr. Greg Kokel. Some descriptions still could be wrong. Secondly, some people are in a privileged position to give the right answer. That's what the issue of authority is all about. 
Some people have an inside line on things. They can speak with greater authority. And this gives us a principle by which we can discover truth. And that principle is that we can, that true ideas are affirmed by reliable authorities. So our vital question with regards to any authority is, is our authority reliable? Why should I believe any particular source of authority? Can it be trusted? And that's a fair question to ask of anybody that offers you their point of view or something. You want to see their reasons. Basically, what I'm doing here is I'm just letting you know that among the ways that we test whether a thing is true or not, one of the ways that we are very familiar with and very comfortable with is the the means of authority. And that some people can be right and some people can be wrong and some people are in a better position to determine the truth about a matter than others. Now, how does that cash out with regards to religion? Let me focus very much now here in the remainder of our session, because this is where I think the rubber meets the road for us. You ask me why do I believe Christianity is true, I have a very simple answer, because Jesus said it was. Jesus is the authority that I trust about these things. Now, why should I trust Jesus? Let me give you a couple of reasons. One, it seems, is that the question is a little bit odd in this sense. Almost everybody has a very high opinion of Jesus. Have you noticed that? How people will invoke Jesus for their view? So when you're discussing about homosexuality, those in favor of homosexuality might say something like this. But Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Well, why should we care what Jesus said? I mean, I'm not sure that's entirely relevant. He never said anything about slavery or about wife beating or child abuse or gay bashing either. So his silence doesn't tell us anything necessarily. But why would somebody want to quote Jesus? Because they think Jesus is a good authority. Jesus is somebody to reckon with. When I said earlier on, you know, Jesus is the only way. Don't be mad at me. He's the one who said it. Right? Well, that changes the nature of it, right? Because who am I? I'm nobody. I'm just Coco. You can disagree with me. What do I know? But Jesus is a lot harder to disagree with because he has credibility and people know it. And that's why I put it back on him. It's his claim. Not only that, the identity of Jesus Christ is the central issue of Christianity. And in this regard, Jesus is absolutely unique. There is nobody like Jesus in religious circles. Um, If you take Buddha out of Buddhism, you still have the teachings of Buddhism, and so Buddhism is intact. If you take Muhammad, the prophet, out of Islam, you still have the teachings that Muhammad offered, and and Islam is still intact. You can do that with every single religion. But if you take Jesus out of Christianity, you no longer have Christianity because Christianity is not about his teachings. To be honest with you, Jesus' teachings were not that unique. He pilfered a lot from the Old Testament. Now, on my view, he wrote it, so it's not plagiarism, right? (laughs) But a lot of things that he said could be found somewhere else. I mean, he gave a little spin to it that was unique, and he had some insight and whatever, but his teachings themselves are not what made the day. It was Jesus himself. Jesus drew attention to himself. The Christian faith is founded on a person, not a teaching. 
Most religious leaders minimize themselves, and then after they die, their disciples deify them. When Jesus was here, he drew all the attention to himself, including deifying attention to himself, and and, and he got himself crucified, and his disciples fled. Jesus asked the question of his disciples, who do men say that I am? And then he said of the same disciples, who do you say that I am? This is the most important question anyone could ever answer. This was central to Jesus. When Jesus was crucified, he was tried before he was crucified in a kangaroo court. And what was it that, that sent him to the cross? It wasn't any crime that he committed because they could find no crime that he committed. In fact, if you saw the movie The Passion, and I suspect most of you did, you saw a fairly realistic rendering of that particular kangaroo court that found him guilty, not of any crime that he committed that people testified to, but the crime that came from his own lips. And what was that crime? Are you the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God? That was the question placed by the high priest. And Jesus said, you have said it yourself. And henceforth, you will not see me unless you see me coming in the clouds with power and great glory. And here, making a clear reference to the prophecy in the book of Daniel of the one like a son of man, the glorious God coming in return, the messianic uh, kingdom being, being, coming to earth, that Jesus referred to in the, uh, the high priest tore his robes. And he said, we don't need testimony. We don't need witnesses. You have heard it from his own lips. He has blasphemed What was the blasphemy? That he claimed to be the Messiah? That's not a blasphemy. Somebody was going to be the Messiah, or so they thought. His blasphemy was his claim to be the Son of God because in the context of that culture, that was the claim to be God. Jesus was not executed for what he did, ladies and gentlemen. He was executed for who he said he was. That was his crime. And when you look at the kind of things that Jesus said about himself, they were quite radical and quite profound. He said he was the son of God. He said he was the giver of eternal life. He said he was the bread of life and the true vine, the great I am, the giver of living water, the light of the world, the future judge of the world, the door of salvation, the resurrection and the life, and the only means of salvation. Now, can you imagine if anyone of us would ever make a claim like that. I wouldn't be surprised if there aren't people walking up and down Telegraph Avenue who are talking like that. I think I saw some of them today, in fact. Nobody's taking them seriously. These are unbelievable claims for any ordinary human being to make. But when Jesus made them, people didn't laugh and scorn. They listened. They sent people, they sent soldiers to arrest Jesus. The soldiers came back empty-handed. They said, why didn't you get him? And the soldiers said, no man speaks as this man speaks. Jesus spoke with incredible authority. Now, here's a simple question that I have to ask you. Was Jesus right? He's either, either right or wrong. He either was God the resurrection and the life, the Alpha and the Omega, the only way of salvation, or he was not. Simple options. If he was wrong, we only have two options to that. Either he knew he was wrong, or he didn't know he was wrong. If Jesus claimed to be God, and he knew that he wasn't God, 
If he claimed to be the only way of salvation and he knew he wasn't the only way of salvation, what was he doing? He was lying. He was telling everyone one of the greatest lies in all of history. Now, I just have a question to ask you. Do you think that it makes the most sense that when you look at Jesus' life and the first-person accounts, the eyewitness accounts that were written about him, the people who knew him best, that recorded the events of his life, do you think it makes sense to account Jesus as a mere liar? Jesus gave us some of the greatest moral teaching the world has ever seen. It is so incredibly sublime. Does it make sense that he was a liar? Even his enemies couldn't find guilt with him. No, I don't think that makes a lot of sense, that Jesus is a liar. It certainly doesn't fit with our understanding of the life that he lived. Well, maybe he, he was wrong, but he didn't know he was wrong. Maybe he thought he was God, but he wasn't. Maybe he was deluded. Maybe he just thought he was the savior of the world. Maybe he just thought he was the resurrection, the life, the living water, and the great I am, and he wasn't. Now, what do we make of a person who thinks that he actually is all those things, but isn't? Telegraph Avenue, <laughs> right? This guy is, you know, the, the light is on, but nobody's home kind of thing. This is not somebody that's in possession of his senses. But I have to ask you the question, knowing what we know about Jesus, does he look like a man who is not in possession of his senses? Does he look like a crazy man? People consider Jesus one of the greatest prophets that ever lived. He is one of the greatest moral teachers that ever lived. He's one of the most profound um, teachers of religious insight that ever lived. Is this what we're left with? A crazy man? A liar? This does not seem to fit with the facts. But if Jesus is not a crazy man or a liar, the only two options for him not being who he claimed to be, then he, by process of elimination, must be who he claimed to be. He is either, as one person put it, a liar or a lunatic, or he's the Lord. You don't have any other options. Now, Gee, this may not be a knockdown, drag out argument to some people. I think it's pretty good. But it's something to contend with. If Jesus was right, and like I said, most people consider him pretty cool, then all other views are wrong by definition. Anyone who disagrees with him must be false. As C.S. Lewis put it, the Cambridge scholar, either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit in him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let not one of us come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. One thing that is very hard to get away from is that Jesus had unimpeachable credibility. He was a phenomenal man. Everybody knows this. If that's the case, we should take what he says seriously because it wasn't just what he said. It was what he did. This man who claimed to be God also could control the forces of nature. This man who claimed to be the Savior could cast out demons. This man who claimed to be the only way to salvation could heal the sick, could raise the dead, 
and in fact predicted his own death and resurrection and three days after that brutal crucifixion on the cross which you saw in that movie depicted I think fairly realistically he raised himself from the dead and convinced his disciples that he was alive and well even though they had abandoned their post and they transformed uh, 11 men and a whole bunch of other people from hiding in the corner to coming out and proclaiming the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. Anybody who can do this has gotten my vote. Jesus has tremendous credibility. I think Jesus demonstrated his claim that he was the only way. Now, I just have one other point to make, and then we'll have some questions and interaction. Why? Why is Jesus the only way? Why did it have to be that way? I was uh, in a Barnes & Noble in Los Angeles, San Fernando Valley, and I was doing a, a thing, a, a kind of a presentation of the book I'd written on relativism. And, you know, you set up the chairs in the middle of the aisles, and then the author comes in and talks a little bit, answers some questions, and then signs some books. Three in my case. But <laughs> a gentleman had overheard my conversation from the outside aisle there, and he came over and he said, you know, I remember you from another radio program. You're that same guy that was on Religion on the Line, aren't you? He said, I said, yeah. He said, I got a question for you. Why do I have to believe in Jesus? Why is Jesus the only way? Listen, I'm a Jew, he said. I believe in God. I try to live the best life that I can live. Why is it that I have to believe in your Jesus? Help me out here. Now, he was amicable. It was a friendly conversation. He wasn't harsh, but he wanted to know an answer to this question, and I think Christians have not been careful to give good answers. I think Christians have said things like, Jesus died for your sins. If you believe in Jesus, you go to heaven. If you don't believe in Jesus, you go to hell. And these are true statements as far as they go, but I think to a lot of non-believers, they're just nonsense. They don't understand this, and this was the nature of this question. And so I said, let me ask you a few questions. (laughs) Do you believe, listen to the first question carefully, do you believe that those who commit moral crimes ought to be punished? He said, well, since I'm a prosecuting attorney, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I got lucky in the attorney part, but most people have this sense if you do bad, you ought to pay for it, right? So good. I said, so do I. Next question, have you ever committed any moral crimes? Mm, Now this is personal, right? What do you think he said? Yes. Yeah, I guess I have. What did I say? So have I. I said, now look at where we've come here in just 30 seconds. We both agree that people who commit moral crimes ought to be punished, and we both agree that we have done those things. You know what I call that? Bad news. We're in trouble. We know that there is a justice and that someday we will feel it. We know that we're guilty. We know that God is ready to, is is, is just in judging us. And I think, and I talked about this a little bit last evening, I think we all have this awareness. The nature of the guilt that we all feel is a sense of fear and dread of the punishment that we deserve. We know we have it coming. He did. But when I talked about that particular issue, it turns out, gee, yeah, I got it coming. That's not good news at all. This is bad news. Now that I've established that with you, let me ask you a final question. Are you interested in clemency? (laughs) Are you interested in a pardon? Are you interested in forgiveness? 
You see, people aren't interested in those things unless they know they need them. Part of my job as a follower of Jesus Christ is to point out the problem before I offer the solution. But the problem is something that we all know about. And then I went to explain, since we both know we have this need, the reason Jesus is the only way is he is the only one who made it possible for you to be forgiven. How does that work? And then I began to explain to him, in simple terms then, what many of you saw but maybe didn't understand when you watched the movie The Passion. Because you saw Jesus of Nazareth in a very historically accurate depiction of, a, of his, his uh, arrest, his trial, his scourging, and his execution. And I understand that for many of you this was hard to watch because it was so bloody. And of course, that's the way it was. And I got an email from the atheist from Canada who was on that TV show, who I had had a time to talk with and about my own convictions about Christianity. I sent him a copy of the book on relativism, and he emailed back, and he says, well, I'm still an atheist, but at least I'm no longer a relativist. <laughs> I said, well, Peter, you got, you, you got a new problem now. You know, let's talk about that. <laughs> but he sent me an email just the other day, and I saw it, and he said, I saw the movie The Passion. It was very moving. It really touched me. I, 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 it was so wonderful, and I understand now what the movie was all about. It was all about tolerance. <laughs> I thought, how did he get that from that movie? Mel Gibson, who made the movie, made it really clear what he was trying to communicate. It was the same message of the New Testament. The movie starts with a statement from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 53. It says, by his stripes we are healed. It's his scourging that was the punishment for our sins. That was the introduction to the movie. This was Jesus' own assessment of his death. What was going on there? Why all the blood? Why all the punishment? There was a reason for this. Who took Jesus' life? Was it the Jews? Was it the Romans? Who killed Jesus? Nobody killed Jesus. You want to know who killed Jesus? Ask Jesus. Jesus says, nobody takes my life. I give my life up on my own accord. I choose to die. And he surrendered himself into the hands of sinful men for all the gruesome treatment that he, he received that you saw for a reason, to rescue sinners around the world because something was happening in the spiritual realm that could not be seen in a film on that fateful day, Good Friday. I wrote a piece about this, in fact. You can find it on our website. It's entitled, The Christ of the Passion, What the Movie Couldn't Show. Now, I think Mel Gibson did a fairly good job in the context of the film of communicating this idea, but I still think it was missed on some people. Because there was something a movie can't show, and that is what God was doing for those three hours of darkness that shrouded the cross. What God was doing during that time was a transaction was taking place. And we read about it in the Bible. You notice that a certificate was placed above Jesus' cross. What did it say? King of the Jews. That was a certificate of death. This was the listing of the crime that Jesus had that he was being punished for. Normally, after the criminal was crucified or punished or imprisoned or whatever, that certificate is removed and it is stamped with a Greek word, tetelestai. That word means paid in full, canceled. The debt has been fulfilled. 
And no one could be punished for that debt again because it's been paid. It's like having a canceled check. You paid the bill. Now, that certificate said king of the Jews. That wasn't Jesus' crime. That wasn't a crime at all. But Paul the Apostle, in writing to the Colossians in chapter 2, says that there was another certificate that was being nailed to that cross. He said it was, certificate, it was not Jesus' certificate, it was our certificate, which consisted of decrees against us and were hostile to us. It was the list of our crimes against a holy God. And in the heavenly realm, so to speak, in the spiritual way, in a way that we couldn't see it, God the Father was nailing that certificate, that list of crimes, that rap sheet, that, that were the crimes of all of us onto Jesus' cross, and then God poured his theory out on his son in exchange for our release. Why is Jesus the only way? Because he is the only one who paid the price. He was the only one that didn't have to pay. He was perfectly innocent. He had no crime whatsoever. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he says, God the Father made him Jesus who knew no sin at all to become our sin so that we could take his righteousness. The transaction that took place in the darkness of those three hours on the cross was a transaction between the Father and the Son in which Jesus took all of our sin and the penalty for it and paid for it and he offered our, his righteousness to us. And that is available to anyone who will receive it. You thought that was gory, what you saw in this film, what man did to Jesus? It wasn't anything compared to what the Father did be to Jesus because of us. But Jesus says, no one takes my life. I give it up willingly to rescue and save the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever would believe in him, put their trust in him, would not perish but have everlasting life. See, friends, religious pluralism is just false. It's obviously false. Something else must be true. Don't take refuge in the empty slogan that all roads lead to Rome, or all paths lead to the top of the mountain, as if this is going to save you. There is too much at stake. I put my money on Jesus because he has credibility. He paid the price. He proved himself. And Jesus made it clear that there will be a day for each of us of reckoning. He's making a list, and he's checking it twice. Let me just read you in closing from the book of Revelation. I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. These are books of the misdeeds of every, a listing of the misdeeds of every human being in the world, including you and me. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to their deeds, and death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown 
into the lake of fire. In other words, for anyone who did not have Jesus pay for him, he paid for himself. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You're thinking, oh, now you're trying to scare me. Yes, I am. (laughs) But I'm trying to scare you with the truth. Let me just put it simply. If Jesus is right, one day you will stand before God in judgment for your life. Jesus said every idle word you speak, you'll give an account of on that day. You will be found guilty, by the way. I suspect you know that. And when that time comes for you, and it will come, any old God won't do. Only one thing will save you from the lake of fire. It will be the one who died on your behalf, Jesus Christ. And that's why he's the only way.